Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Tuesday morning, October 31st, 843-661-0937 is our number. Good morning, Josh. Good morning. Good morning, Rev. Good morning. It's Halloween, right? Boo. Yeah. I remember the days <laughs> of the plastic mask and oh, the yeah. sweat. I mean, just sweating <laughs> like you nobody's business. Weren't, and weren't not, the 70s great? Well, I mean, and not caring because you're Batman or you're right. Superman, which are the... Uh, I was thinking about this last night. So what would be the most popular women's or little girls i mean when little girls dress up i'm not talking about cowboy cheerleader i'm talking about specific character specific costume um batman and superman depending on what year it is um have historically been number one and two for little uh little male kids or those who identify as male um <laughs> little boys, what, what is on. those that identify uh, those that define the, or identify themselves as pronoun she or her what what are they what do they dress as um, you mean little girls? Yeah, little girls. I'd imagine uh, Elsa from Frozen these days. Elsa from Frozen. Yeah. Not Taylor Swift. No. Okay. Good deal. Um, you're I just bet, guessing. You I don't know that. That's, that's my assumption. Okay. That's your assumption. Um, you ever spelled assumption? A. S S U M. Okay. 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 Just we'll we'll leave it there. Know what happens when you assume? So I want to thank Williams and Jeff yesterday for being major contributors. Yes. To our feeble attempt at Radio Brigades. <laughs> they helped us show prep uh, yesterday. Talking about gun control and um, and abortion. And, you know, um, Williams' point was well taken. We did not talk about the mass shooting in Maine because I believe it brings attention to someone who perpetrated a horrific act of violence against very, very innocent people. Um, and, I mean, it, I read verbatim what the Democrat platform says when it comes to abortion. And I was thinking about this last night. I actually went to Twitter and tried to find the last time I heard a Democrat say, yes, there should be, should be some regulation uh, on abortion was never. Uh, the modern Democrat just does not believe that there should be any limitations on when a woman um, could have an abortion. Then we got into the, um, to the Heller case. And, you know, the, um, to me, that's the landmark. I mean, to me, if you, if you want to know a thoughtful, analysis of gun control or not uh the scalia majority opinion in the heller case i mean it, once again um i'm not talking about sitting on the tailgate yelling and screaming at one another i'm talking about an intellectual understanding of a of a, a a a constitutionalist interpretation of what the second amendment implied um i mean it's up for debate there, there's no doubt about that i mean we debate the bible good lord i know we can debate you know the constitution and is it living and breathing? And I'll accept Jeff's comments yesterday. I will readily accept that if all our founders gathered at a, you know, a Hilton property in Florence, they'd probably come up with a little bit different constitution than today. They've given us the opportunity to update the constitution. I mean, they've given us ample reasons to go down that road. We have an amending process. I mean, they left it. Um, I mean, they didn't say this is the way it has to be forever. They said, this is the way it is now, and if it's never be changed, here's how you amend it. Here's how you make the changes uh, to, the, um, to the Constitution that one day would have been 245 or so years old. So let's amend the Constitution. I mean, if the majority of Americans believe that the Constitution is outdated, it's antiquated, it's not to be trusted or relied upon anymore, let's change the Constitution. Let's amend the Constitution. Here's my point. What amendment would be most important to the American people? I mean, if you wanted to change the Constitution, what, what would you amend the Constitution in relation to? 
Um, I mean, the liberals would probably theoretically and hypothetically argue give the federal government more <laughs> abilities, give it more power, entrust more in its uh, you know ability to move the meter or curtail uh, the forces against uh, the federal government. Um, yeah, I always land on you know the old faithful term limits and requiring the federal government to have a balanced budget. You do wonder what the um, what the founders would say about term limits. I mean, I think I understand what they'd say about budgets. I mean, don't spend money you don't have. I mean, I think they'd all be in support of some balanced budget amendment. I mean, they would probably say, and, you know, in the event of a war, I mean, I understand it. I mean, if we don't have enough money coming in the door to pay the bill to fight a war against Russia or China or, or some other geopolitical adversary, you know, let, let's, let's go into debt, but let's pay that back as quickly as we can. I think I'd probably get rid of that pesky one that uh, added the income tax. I think I'd just get rid of that one. Yeah, well, I mean, they're, they're, you know, I'm just saying we've had, we have opportunities and we have amended uh, the Constitution. So if you don't like the Second Amendment, amend it. I'm going to amend the amendment. You can do that. But, but if you really are serious about understanding the constitutionality or not of something, read the Heller decision. Nobody can call Scalia a gun enthusiast. I mean, he was an outdoorsman and died mysteriously at a hunting reservation. Um, mysteriously, I might add. Um, I got, what are you dying your head at, Josh? Oh, here we go. I, I don't know. The, here we go. I don't know the conspiracy, but, you know, whenever it's a mysterious death of a political figure, it makes you be, uh, raise an eyebrow. Especially one as important as he was right. at the moment in time he died. I mean, if you really think about um, Scalia's impact on the opinions or, or on the on the court, really, I mean, he would have been our, and I'm saying our by conservative America, he would have been one of our preeminent intellectual superpowers. I mean, it, you know, he was a heavyweight. I mean, it, you know, Scalia was an intellect. I mean, beyond, I mean, I'm not saying beyond compare, but he was the intellectual heavyweight on the conservative side of the court. I mean, there, there's no doubt about that. A very amicable man, from what I've read. Um, he and Ruth Bader Ginsburg had a famous friendship, a very dear friendship. Um, they were wine connoisseurs. They were foodies. Um, you know, they, they, they believed in really good food, and they shared a lot of time together, and they built this very bonding friendship that, um, that remained a bit private for a long time. You know, I don't know if Scalia was a, you know, Scalia probably said to Ginsburg, hey, people don't need to know you're real good friends with me, and my people don't need to know I'm real good friends with you, so let's keep that in our in our back pocket for a while. I've got three, four, five, six friends who aren't conspiracy theorists on average. They believe something happened to Scalia that doesn't make sense. You know, can I mean, he's at a hunting lodge. There's a misplaced pillow. Um, anyway, it's uh, that's not some of the – Strange websites. I mean, that's some mainstream reporting. Um, but anyway, if you want to better understand it, I'd encourage people to do this. Um, I'm a good old boy. I mean, I'm from the country. Um, good old boys from the country aren't dumb. Um, read the Scalia opinion. Take a little while of your life. Um, I mean, you're an outdoorsman, you're a hunter, you're a fisherman, you're pro-gun, um, you support the Second Amendment. I want you to intellectually understand it's not just, you know, a hunting club and a cold beer and an argument about guns. I mean, it's got to be better than that. And I think the Scalia opinion 
answers some of the questions or, or basically explains some of the intellectuals' interpretation of the um, of the Second Amendment. Speaking of intellectuals, I saw something interesting um, this morning, and, and I kind of sort of knew this. There are somewhere in the neighborhood uh, of 8 million Jews in America. We don't know exactly how many, but somewhere in the neighborhood. The majority of census reporting and census um, calculations say there are somewhere in the neighborhood of 8 million Jews in America today. The Jew votes about 75% Democrat. I don't understand it. Um, I've never understood it, but I'm not Jewish and I'm not a Democrat. So why am I, why, why would I understand, you know, that, that coat, the coziness of that relationship? Um, but I read something in the New York times yesterday that kind of caught my attention. You ready? Um, because we're talking about intellectuals. We're talking about intellects. We're talking about academia. We're talking about, um, you know, the elite universities in America and how much influence they have on our newsrooms and on our federal government. So in the American newsrooms that are inhabited by the elite educated, um, you know, graduates of Ivy League schools and I, I guess, uh, I mean, there, there are several others. Stanford would be one. But we've kind of um, argued that Stanford would be more technology-inclined the top graduates from Stanford probably don't aspire to be the deputy director of Homeland Security as much as somebody in that kind of Northeast corridor in those Ivy League schools. The Stanford crowd invents things and takes companies public and makes billions of dollars and buys Bugattis and McLarens. That's kind of what they do out there on the West Coast. But um, but I saw this and I wrote it down this morning. I actually put it in, a, in my phone when I read it. In the newsrooms of America today, there's a debate about Hamas. Are they terrorist or are they anti-colonial defiers? I mean, that, that's kind of the catchphrase now. And we're talking about intellects. We're talking about intellectuals in the newsrooms in America. And I would imagine there's a debate between the senior editor at the New York Times and the deputy director of Homeland Security. I mean, they're kind of sort of the same person. I mean, they're not. We haven't cloned people yet. It's not artificial intelligence. But those people probably have a very similar worldview, and they've coined the phrase anti-colonial defiance. It's not terrorism any longer. Um, and, and I'll say this. Um, it's hard to blame, you know, right-wingers on what's happening in America today because very few government agencies are run by someone who is not a, an elitist intellectual graduate of these eight or nine universities. Remember I'm asking you a lot here. Remember a couple of years ago, we did a bit, and I'm talking about a segment or two or three. Uh, I got my hands on the number of economists that work at the Fed who are registered Democrats. I mean, it was oh, about yeah. 85, 90% of all economists that are employed at the Federal Reserve. Somebody did kind of a back check of, are they a registered Republican or a registered um, Democrat? About 85% of all government agencies in America, in that same survey, it was Pew is who did the work. In that same Pew um, study, it was about the same when it comes to government agencies. The government agencies are run by people who at the tune of about 85% registered Democrat. So it's hard to blame or hard to blame Republicans for the direction that the government is going. In other words, when some of these elites get together and, and say, hey, stop calling it terrorism. We're going to call it anti-colonial defiance. 
um, now. That's more accept- Those aren't a bunch of conservatives, but there aren't many conservatives in that conversation uh, redefining, I guess, cutting people's heads off is not terrorism any longer. It's rather anti-colonial defiance if it's a Jew. Now, if it's not a Jew, I don't know where you go from there. But if it's a Jew, it's, you know, it's anti-colonial defiance. I, this is an interesting statistic, and then we'll take our first break, Josh. Um, there's, a, there's a Jewish gun activist organization called Magan-AM, Magan-AM, M-A-G-E-N space A-M. Um, I don't know that I'm pronouncing it right, but that's the way I read it, M-A-G-E-N space A-M. Um, Jews have historically been liberal on gun control. Remember, uh, in the nation of Israel, they have very strict gun laws. Only about 2% of the Israelis or the Jews in Israel own guns. I don't know how many others. I mean, I don't know the Orthodox Jew, you know, the secular Jew, the Palestinian, the Arab. I mean, I, I don't, you know, but, but about 2% of Israeli citizens own guns. Now, it's not, we, we had a debate last week about theocracy or not. I think Charles and Rick. You know, kind of, I mean, not, not a back and forth. That's unfair. But one had an opinion. Somebody had another opinion. And Evans said it depends. And Evans got a pretty informed opinion about whether it's a theocracy or not. When somebody like Netanyahu's in charge, it's probably more of a theocracy than when somebody less orthodox uh, is in charge. But anyway, in this group, um, and, you know, M-A-G-E-N, space A-M, Magan M, it's, a, it's a, an American Jewish gun training class. They had about 950 calls in the last three years, about 32 months, 950 calls in 32 months. They had 638 in the five days after the Gaza attack in Israel. The Southern white was a Democrat for a long, 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 long time until he wasn't. And the Southern white, I mean, we can blame racism and civil rights and, I mean, whatever. I mean, you, you, can, you can say, well, I mean, they were all racist. And the, the Democrat Party and LBJ and civil rights legislation, they didn't want to support that. So they abandoned and went into the Republic. Well, I mean, whatever. What, it was a tectonic shift in American politics. And the South is red. I mean, the South is bright, bold, brilliant red today. Jews vote 75% Democrat until now. Eight million Jews are, are going to change their voting proclivities in 2024, and that gives Trump an even better chance to win the White House. Mm-hmm. I've got some um, some some migration, some in migration um, numbers here. About 8.2 million people moved to different states in 21 and 22. I, I want to break that down, but but I'm not saying the Amer- I mean, there are not as many American Jews as there were Amer- uh, American white Southerners. But the American white Southerner, for whatever reason, became a loyal Republican, a diehard Republican. There is no way, there is no way the Jews will continue to pledge loyalty to a party that is run by these elites, these academic elites that say, no, it's not terrorism. When your people got their heads cut off, it's rather anti-colonial defiance. Take a break. Back in a few. So I, I want to shift gears real quick. I just got a text, and I did get some text last night. So um, the Clemson football program is not as good as it was. I mean, can we agree on that? It's not as good as it was. As a Gamecock fan, I find a little joy in that. 
I mean, I do. It's not any fun to be very, very average and your rival be, you know, on top of Mount Everest. I mean, that just, football season's hard when that's the case. And I don't wish any ill on any Clemson fan listening to my voice. But last night, uh, somebody sent me a uh, a text. I, you're already not in oh, your head. Oh, yeah. I was <laughs> going to ask you about it if you'd heard about somebody it. Somebody called in the Dabo show, and he went off. And basically talked about expectation and appreciation. and I think they asked him how he, he can expect to make that much money and have the record they've got. That, that's what it was about. You know, you're making 11 or 10.86, whatever the number is, north of $10 million, and we suck. I mean, we're, we're you know, we're four and four. You're making $11 million a year. Can you with a straight face accept that paycheck? And Dabo went off. I mean, instead of saying, hey, dude, you got your opinion. I got mine. We're all Tigers. Let's get to a better place together. Um, and and uh, he told him if you think you I think I think what he said is if you think you do a better job come apply for well, it. I mean, and and he took the bait. <laughs> yeah, he you did. know, and, and Dabo's that kind of person. I mean, D- Dabo's a little like me. He's not going to walk away from you know a confrontation. I mean, he historically has had something to say about almost everything. Now, there's no doubt about it. Dabo is one of three college football coaches that have won multiple national championships. But I mean, that speaks for itself. That is very rare that a college football coach would win multiple national championships. It's so rare that only three three have done it. Um, now, some others may do it eventually. But right now, he's in very, very exclusive company with Nick Saban and Kirby Smart. So I've not listened to the back and forth. I read uh, some of the transcript, and, you know, Dabo just kind of went on and on and on and on and on. I text with Jason Priester last night. I don't think Jason would mind me saying this. But, but I'm not a Clemson fan. I mean, I'm a Gamecock, and we've got our own issues. We've won two ball games, folks. Um, we've lost six. How's that settling with yep. you? And it can't be – I mean, the University of South Carolina's football program can't be predicated on how good or bad your rivals is. I mean, that frustrates me. It makes me furious, to be honest with you. But, um, but I thought about the Clemson program and its decline. I didn't say demise. It's decline because they could find themselves and come back next year and be bigger and badder than ever. There is no doubt, and this is what I said, Jason, there's no doubt that having two consecutive generational talents at quarterback is first. I mean, it's, it's the old Bobby Cox theory I've told Rev about. You give me Maddox, Glavitt, and Smoltz in the prime of their career, I win 100 games. Forget Bobby Cox. Forget all the best managers in the history of the game. You give me 60% of my starting pitching staff, first ballot Hall of Famers, hard to screw that up. So when you've got Deshaun Watson at quarterback, when you've got Trevor Lawrence at quarterback, you're going to be better than most teams, especially if you recruit, and they did at an elite level. But I asked Jason, and I'm not going to give his answer, but I asked Jason, I said, okay, Jason, obviously not having a generational quarterback is the most important reason for the decline. What are the other biggest reasons? And I listed these, and I'd love to get Clemson Nation. I mean, who am I to ask Clemson Nation to call in and chime in on, you know, what the problems are? There's no doubt Dabo's reluctance at NIL and the transfer portal has hurt him. I mean, there's no doubt. Uh, Dabo said, my NIL is spelled G-O-D. That's in one of those moments that he kind of likes talking. There's a political theory out there, guys. Trump would be guilty of this. I'm guilty of this. As long as you're talking, you think you're winning. Robert Cahaley told me one day, put a period there, not a comma. You said it extremely well, and then you added something that confuses people. Well, I mean, some people, and Dabo's one of those. As long as Dabo's talking, he believes he's winning. So Dabo says when NIL became the new normal, 
in college football. Dabo said, my NIL is G-O-D. And I'm thinking to myself, well, you'll be an atheist uh, by the time this sorts itself out if you don't give in to some of the um, some of the newness of what's happening in football today. I think Clemson has struggled with some of the ACC uncertainty. Is the ACC going to be a conference in five years? Is Clemson going to join the Big Ten? Is Clemson going to join the, the SEC? Nobody knows the answer to that. And I'm not saying kids ask Dabo on a recruiting visit, hey, what conference are we playing in if I stay two or three or four years? The other, Brent Venables. I mean, I think Brent Venables may have been more important to that program than a lot of people thought. And I think him leaving, not just as an elite defensive coordinator, but he was a, a very emotional guy. And I played a lot of football, Rev, and there are a coach or a player or two that set the mood for practice, set the mood for the program. Their intensity resonates. Their desire to win, to be champions, kind of permeates the program. And I think Venables was that. Um, he's a really good defensive coach, but he was more than that. I mean, he was the person, once again, that I think set the intensity standard for the Clemson program. But here's two things that I think Clemson has to accept. The great run was with Mark Rick and uh, Larry Fedora at North Carolina. Clemson went to Georgia and got really, really good players out of that state. They still do, and they still will. Guess what? The Gamecocks go to Georgia and get a good player or two. But Kirby Smart pretty much gets out of Georgia what he chooses to get. And when Rick leaves Georgia and Kirby Smart becomes the coach, it's a new day for Clemson and South Carolina for that matter. You ain't going to Georgia getting players that Kirby Smart really wants. Likewise in North Carolina, Mac Brown getting hired at North Carolina. Mac Brown can, can coach okay, but he's a really, really good recruiter. So in border states, you've got a significant upgrade of head coach and their recruiting abilities. I didn't say Rick couldn't coach. I don't know if Fedora could or not. But there's no way that those two former coaches of UNC and Georgia are as good of recruiters as Kirby Smart and, and Mac Brown. So it's not, I mean, I don't think it's one thing. I mean, I think the most important thing is obviously to have consecutive. Dabo was Bobby Cox. Bobby Cox had the luxury of having three of the best pitchers of this generation in the prime of their career on the same staff. Hard to screw that up. Dabo kind of caught that break. Now, he didn't catch the break without working at it. I mean, he went out and got Deshaun Watson. They went out and recruited and got Trevor Lawrence, both from Georgia. That's kind of interesting, both from Georgia. Um, what if Kirby Smart had the program he has today? Does Deshaun Watson leave Georgia? Does Trevor Lawrence leave Georgia? I don't know. I'm not saying they do or don't. But I just think that there's been some headwinds um, aside of the generational play at quarterback and I think you've got to throw on the table. North Carolina's recruiting a lot better because Mac Brown knows how to recruit. Georgia's recruiting a lot better because Kirby Smart knows how to recruit. And, I, and I'll add this, and Debo may call in and chew me out. <laughs> Debo's gained weight. Mm. What, 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 what do you mean by that? I mean, I, I can make heads or tails of all these. What do you mean by that? You ever heard of the old saying, fat and happy? I mean, if you put a, sure. well, I mean, if you just put enough notches in your belt, <laughs> you're not quite as inclined to be as dedicated as you've always been. That is the the crazy part of Saban. I mean, it really is. How does Nick Saban not at some point in time get content? How does he not get somewhat lackadaisical? 
I, I could explain it. You ready? We'll take our break. Josh got the music. You know why Nick Saban is Nick Saban? He's a Vulcan. <laughs> That's it. He's not a real person. <laughs> Nick Saban does not bleed like you nor I. He is a Trekkie Vulcan. I'm convinced Dabo's not a Vulcan. Dabo won a bunch of games, makes a bunch of money, uh, became kind of coaching royalty, put on a few LBs. That's what people do when they get a bit content. And and I don't say rest on their laurels because I'm not accusing Dabo of that, but Dabo's not a Vulcan. Nick Saban is. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. A Gamecock fan, and I'm not giving advice. I mean, please, you didn't hear me give a, an ounce of advice. We've won two ball games. <laughs> I'll just leave it True. there. All right, we, we've got to have a four-game home winning don't, streak. Don't remind me. To be bowl eligible. Six and six gets you to the Poole and Weed Eater Bowl or whatever they call it, <laughs> Treeport now. So that's what that, that that is our ceiling as we speak. But I do think it's interesting that Clemson Nation is dealing with, I don't want to say coming back to earth, but the realities <laughs> of the cyclical nature of college football. Just like we all do. We just hadn't been to the top. We're well, talking we, about we, we gained right. So you said the thing about uh, Dabo gaining weight. And what that reminded me of is you actually said the same thing. I don't know if you said it on the air, but you told me a few years ago, you said the same thing about Will Muschamp. I, rem- when he I was remember on his, in his last days. Will gained weight. And I just think, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not a health nut, but I'm somebody who takes wellness and fitness pretty seriously. And I, I just, there, there's certain things that happen in your life that cause you to gain weight, uh, stress, um, being just, just overwhelmed by the job or whatever it is you're doing. You're overwhelmed by something. You find peace and solace in eating and food and you don't take care of yourself. And then uh, there's a reason it's called fat and happy. And it's been around a long, long, long time. And I want to say this with, with all clarity in the world, Dabo is the American dream. I mean, does, does anybody, I mean, I know I'm a Gamecock fan who knows Dabo's story. I mean, it is the quintessential American dream. Uh, I mean, the guy selling insurance, I mean, he talks about sleeping in a bed with his mom because they couldn't afford an extra bedroom. He's a, you know, he gets out of the insurance business. Uh, I think he coached for a little while and didn't go anywhere there and got in the, in the insurance selling business and trying to make a go of it there. Never had any money, always struggling. His family always struggled. They roll the dice at Clemson, fire Bobby Bowden in the middle, or Tommy Bowden in the middle of a season, hire him. He's never been a coordinator. Nobody knows who he is, where he comes from, what he's about. People laugh at his name, Dabo. And the next thing you know, he's a two-time national championship football coach. I mean, it says much the American dream. You could argue this, because I've argued with Gamecock fans, the greatest coaching hire in the history of college athletics. Now, now, I'm a Southerner, so I'm going to be a little more aware of the Southern examples. And the two I come up with are Mike Krzyzewski of Duke and Dabo Swinney of Clemson. I mean, that, you know, look, look at what happened after Krzyzewski came to Duke and its basketball program. Look at what happened to Clemson. The Clemson had enjoyed some previous success of the Danny Ford era, but they kind of wandered around a bit. Dabo gets there and builds a program that is as good as Alabama's. In fact, they beat Alabama for a national champion, beat them soundly. Um, so, I mean, what, what he's done speaks for itself. But, but is he at the end of a run? I don't know. I don't have any idea. Um, but it's not just about the generational quarterback play. There have been a few other things that have happened that have made life a little harder for Dabo. 
And and I think the the contract side of the contract that makes you financially secure for the rest of your life takes a little edge off of you. Bill Elliott said that when he raced to pay the bills, the hole looked a lot bigger between those two cars. When Harry Melling wrote them a big check and became the owner of their team, mm, the hole had to be bigger before he stuck his bumper in there or not. I mean, it's just, you know, motivate hunger leads to motivation. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Baron in Hartsville. Good morning, Baron. Hey, good morning, guys. One, it feels good to be actually calling y'all from South Carolina this morning. Good deal. Two, I love politics, but man, football's fun. I think um I think football college football is going undergoing what the Pentagon would call a revolution in football affairs. And the you know, we're three years into something that none of us will be able to understand for another ten. At my test and my the first thing I saw it, and this is you know, this is transfer portal, this is an IL, this is it was when Venerables comes to Oklahoma. And we're in the era now that coach leaves and coach can get the big donors of the city he's going to, especially a place like Los Angeles, to cough up the money to let his players go with him. Com- com- combination of the NIL and the transfer portal. Now his reaction at Oklahoma is to go all in on the transfer portal and rebuild a team from nothing so his first year is gone. But I think, one, the first thing we will see going forward is that when coach leaves, it will be utterly devastating to a point, not just recruiting, but the actual team itself, like we haven't seen before. But secondarily, I think we will see somewhat of a of a great equalization, where if you've got money and you're a program that doesn't have, a, let's say, a history of winning, that you have the ability to stand with teams that used to be dynasties. I think the natural outcome of NIL and transfer is the end of the run altogether more than two or three years because it comes such a dog-eat-dog game at, let's call it, the operational level of war of football, the fighting for the control and the management of the team. And then, minorly, right, on the third, I think the remnant of folks who don't like the big money and the big play will flock to something. And I think 10 years, 15 years from now, we will. It, we, we might not marvel, but we might go, hmm, at, how, at the growth of Division Three football. I don't disagree with that, Baron. We actually had that. Thank you for the call. Appreciate it. That's an interesting analysis. Baron has a military background. I don't, so I can't compare it to, to the stages of conflict and war and engagement. But, but I, I've had a lot of these conversations with Clemson and Gamecock fans about what is to come, there is going to at some point in time be donor fatigue. I mean, it's already happening in a lot of places. Now, now once again, donor fatigue at Texas and Texas A&M is a little bit different than donor fatigue at South Carolina, Clemson, North Carolina, NC State, you know, Georgia Tech. Uh, Georgia would be a little bit, it's got the Atlanta metropolitan area. Um, donor fatigue at Ohio State, Michigan, Southern Cal uh, would be a little bit different. But I do believe that there's going to be some consideration give, given to, you know, kind of the throwback days of college football. It all began, guys, and, and, I, and, and I know I'm right about this. I mean, there, there was a moment in time that the NCAA had to understand that the economy of college football was just completely out of whack. I mean, I don't know what a player's worth. I have no idea what a what the starting quarterback at Clemson's worth, what the starting wide receiver at South Carolina's worth, 
what the what the starting outside linebacker at Texas A&M is. I don't have any idea. We don't have a marketplace yet for that slot or this slot or that position or or that position. But but I knew that the day Nick Saban hired or signed an, an $80 million contract and Dabo signed an $80 million contract and Jim Harbaugh signed a $100 million contract and assistant coaches. I mean, there was an LSU assistant, and I just remember scratching my head going, damn. I mean, the LSU assistant was making $2.35 million. And then I read that when the um, when the, when, when the SEC expands uh, with Texas and Oklahoma, the television revenue increases to somewhere in the neighborhood of a billion dollars. And the Big Ten signs a billion-dollar TV contract. I just got to believe that some parent of some athlete, football in particular, that's a revenue generator, sat around and said, son, do you have any idea what your coach makes? Do you have any idea what your position coach makes? Do you have any idea what your university brings in from television revenue and ticket sales and Gamecock Club and IPTA donations? Do you have any idea? I mean, I know we're getting an education. We're getting a degree in basket weaving or some other sort of, um, I mean, they steer these athletes into certain programs that that aren't, ain't many football players at Clemson or Carolina majoring in biology or pre-med. I mean, there are a few, but they're not many. And, and I just believe the NCAA at that moment in time had a decision to make, do we come up with a model that is fair to the player or not? And they chose instead of coming up with a model, you know what they chose to do? They doubled down. And they said, yeah, you can buy that kid a bagel, but if you put sour cream on it and he doesn't pay for it, you're, you're violating the NCAA, an NCAA rule. And I, I just think once the Ed O'Bannon case in California happened and, and the court said, you're taking advantage of these kids. You knew the pendulum was going to swing too far to one side, and it has. Now, now, where is equilibrium? I don't know. I don't have any idea. But I do believe Barron's on to something. There will be a day in the next decade that some teams decide, I'm not doing this. I mean, I, I'm just not, you know, I'm not interested in that any longer. And we get back to, uh, you know, uh, bulletins on the mailbox or in the mailroom at college campuses. Hey, if you played college, if you played high school football, we're having trials at 1.30 Saturday afternoon, and we're looking for 85 kids to play. I mean, I do believe there will be a nostalgic perspective in college football. Now, I'm not saying that Clemson and South Carolina are too far down the road. I mean, they, 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 have, they have agreed to join the arms race, and it's hard to back up once you make that decision. Take a break. Back in a few. This guy's been a regular feature of Wake Up Carolina. Ron Schmelz of Fox News Radio is with us from our nation's capital, giving us daily updates on the um, the speaker's race. And now we have a speaker, and Mike Johnson, uh, in his first task, has introduced or offered up a standalone bill for Israel. I think it'll come to the House floor this week, probably, Ryan. What does this say about Biden and the Senate trying to secure further funding for Ukraine? Well, I think they're running into the fact that Speaker Johnson is not willing to spend a ton of money. You know, he's trying to really take on fiscal responsibility and cut spending in Washington. And you're seeing that with this ambitious plan to just vote for Israel as a standalone bill. But in the way in which he's trying to pay for it is going to tick off a lot of Democrats, which is essentially that he's going to take that money from the IRS, $15 billion dollars, or close to $15 billion, and use that to pay for this Israel package. And, of course, that's something that's not going to sit well with Senate Democrats. So, Ryan, can the president get funding for Ukraine if the House does not go along? Uh, 
it's going to be hard. It certainly is going to be hard. They, they, they have certain money that they've already appropriated from previous budgets, but, you know, it's not going to be the $14 billion that they're trying to pitch right now. So this is certainly something they need the House to cooperate with them on for, for sure. So uh, how that's going to work and what that's going to look like, I think it really depends. You know, the Senate could always negotiate with this Israel package and maybe make some adjustments to what the, the, the plan is to pay for it. So it really just depends. Well said. Thank you, Ron. Appreciate your time. Hey, have a good one, my friend. Thank you. And, and, and I'll say this. I mean, if this is who Mike Johnson is, I got to give Matt Gates a little credit. Right. That's exactly what I was I thinking. mean, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I mean, I think Gates did it the wrong way. Uh, I, I think McCarthy made the ultimate mistake by allowing himself to be that exposed. And 16 my, and deals, 20 members. Is why didn't McCarthy, you know, take this well, approach? I mean, McC- McCarthy's a California Republican. Yeah, I'm, I'm he's just, a rhino. Well, I mean, it, very much so. Yeah, very, he's a go-along, so. get-along Republican. Uh, he's a great fundraiser. And and it's almost like in politics today, if a guy has trouble raising money, he's probably anti-establishment. He's probably the guy the Republican base would rather have in a, in a very prominent position. I mean, it's going to be hard to raise money if you represent the interest of the voters. That goes to the asymmetrical relationship that the Republican Party finds itself in. The voters are here. The donors are there. If Johnson wants to be a prolific fundraiser, guess what he's got to do? He's got to, got to do the, the donor's bidding. If he wants to be popular with the base, he's got to do what the base says, and the base clearly says, no more money for Ukraine, and let's be very hesitant about Israel. The base of the Republican Party today is about as non-interventionist as it's ever been. I've seen polling. They are absolutely opposed to funding for Ukraine. They are willing to consider additional funding for Israel. Let's go to the phone. Breeze, you still there? Yeah, uh, but you know, like I said, I, I have a hard time deciding exactly who the good guys are, but I can usually always spot the bad guys. And I, I don't dig much deeper than that, and that's why I think we got to be on Israel's side because the bad guys are on the Muslim side. <laughs> But Breeze, what does that mean to you? You're a smart guy. What when you say we got to be on Israel's side? What what does that mean to you? Well, I mean, I don't know how far I will go with it, but I just know. And again, I'm not that daggone smart. I, I think I got a knack for figuring out who the bad guys are, and I just know that the bad guys seem to be supporting Hamas and uh and the Palestinians. So I just figured, you know. Now, when I say, no, I'm not that idiot that's going to say, if they want war, let's give them one. No, no, I'm not going over there to fight. And I help, I mean, send my boys over there to fight. Y'all see all these dang old Facebook warriors. If they want a war, let's give it to them. Son, you've never even been in a fight in Clark County. You show us hell don't want to be in a fight in the Middle East. I mean, Jesus. All of these tough guys talk about war, war, war. I do not want my boys at war. And another thing, too, we can't support a war that's going to bankrupt us. But if we can afford to give them something, let's give them something. And probably, we probably could get away with giving them a hell of a lot less than you have to give that fool over there in Ukraine so his wife can go spend $10 million on a shopping spree in New York, which is now visiting. I mean, that whole group, Russia and Ukraine, are completely corrupt. I've got a Russian kid that I trade, and he's been in America for a year. And he says, yeah, he said, you're talking about the Sanchez government, you can't get much more corrupt than ours and the Ukrainians. 
He just flat out says it. It's just total corruption. There's no good guys over in the Russian or Ukrainian government. Now, the, the citizens, like you said, none of them want to be fighting. It's the fools that are running the government. And that's probably the same thing you got over there. It's the fools that run everything and causing everybody else to get killed. But, but you know, you were talking about those. Go, go ahead. No, go ahead. You continue. But you were talking about those guns yesterday. And, I, you know, and all the people were calling. I saw the guy. He's right. More people get beat to death with sticks and shot with rifles. And then you had, uh, you know, fascist Jeff talking about the, the AR ban, the assault rifle ban. And it really wasn't a ban. They still made those AR-15s that just took off the flash suppressor and a few other things and cut the capacity of the clips where people kept finding them. But who has done more for gun sales and buying in your lifetime than the Democrat Party? The people that are against guns. I'm trying to figure this out. Bill Clinton. Nobody before Bill Clinton came along and ba- tried to do the assault ban and the capacity ban. Where I was from, nobody had AR-15s. Nobody felt like they had to have a Beretta with 18 shots. Most of the people I knew had a 38 that they kept around and a shotgun and a couple of rifles for hunting. They would also work for self-defense. But nobody had AR-15s with 2,000 rounds. Nobody bought all of these high-capacity 9 millimeters. You know what I'm saying? Bill Clinton brought that on. Why would a people that are a party that's anti-gun, I mean, Bill Clinton's a smart guy. Didn't he know that that ban would increase gun sales? During Barack Obama's presidency, gun sales went through the roof. And then when you looked at when, uh, when the Democrat, um, that old, uh, the Democrat fascist terrorists, you know, the, the, their daggone uh, brown shirts were terrorizing all these streets and beating up and killing all these people. Gun sales went through the roof again. Didn't they know that? Joe Biden has done more for gun sales. Every time they and, – and with this when did the government really care if a white guy killed 10 or 12 or 20 other white guys? I mean, is that more important than all of the black folks who get killed in these other cities? I mean, I'm just asking myself these questions and trying to figure out the answer why. Well, keep doing it. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it. You know, I believe, and I'll go to Obama. I think when Obama became president, at some point in time in his presidency, America realized that we had a radical in the White House. I don't think, I mean, when Clinton started fooling around with gun laws and assault weapon bans and whatnot, okay, that's a Democrat. But, but, I mean, Bill Clinton was from Arkansas, and Bubba elected him governor. A lot of Bubbas in America. A lot of Bubbas, figuratively, not literally. There are a lot of Bubbas in America, and they weren't that intimidated by Clinton. When Obama got elected at some point in time, the narrative of the government's coming after my guns became less fringe and less extreme and far more mainstream um, because Obama embodied or symbolized radical liberalism in a way we never seen up close and personal. I mean, at some point in time in his administration, now for a long time, he was a, you know, a, a wolf in sheep's clothing. Remember the, the story about Obama. In 2008, Barack Obama ran and got elected president on traditional marriage. He opposed same-sex marriage. Barack Obama never opposed same-sex marriage, but he had to say that to the nation in 2008 to get elected. But at some point in time, early in his first term, we began to realize 
that we had a radical liberal in the White House, maybe even an anti-American liberal in the White House. I mean, obviously a, uh, you know, a socialist sympathizer. I mean, there's no doubt about that. And at some point in time, he went from a, a socialist sympathizer to a socialist Do you wonder whether he's a full-blown communist or not. And, and he got major legislation done. I mean, the socialization of health care is kind of what we deal with today. How many of you are paying less for your health care than you were prior to Obamacare becoming uh, law of the land? But, but, you know, when I don't know what the percentages are, I mean, I, I could make up a number and say, you know, in 2007, before Barack Obama got elected, 5% of Americans believe that the government's coming after your gun. That number really dramatically increased after Obama became president because we once again, Breeze is right about Clinton and the assault weapons ban, but, but you still perceived him to be as Bubba from Arkansas. And along comes this robotic political figure from the, you know, the, the, I don't know, the political machine of Chicago, and you don't know anything about him. You don't know where he comes from. You don't know what he's about. You don't know what he believes in. You don't know what his priorities are, what he stands for. And I, and I believe that, you know, just people that weren't infatuated with guns, that there's always been a, an element of our population that have been infatuated with, with a gun. When my father passed away, the, the three things that we wanted to make sure ended up in the hands of his best friends in the world were guns. My, my dad was an outdoorsman, a hunter, and he had, you know, some sort of over and under Belgian bounty shot. I don't know. My brother can explain it much better than I. Um, I mean, I can tell you what a 38 power is. My brother could tell you what that kind of gun was and who needed to have that gun. But there's been this, I don't know, generational infatuation. And I believe it comes from settling the West. I mean, Dr. Scott Coppin and I've had this debate about gun control and gun ownership and the intrigue or infatuation Americans, why Americans own so many guns. I think we, there's almost a nostalgic romance we have about the gun and settling the West and the new frontier and, and all these things. And, you know, I don't want to say everybody wants to be Josie Wales, but name a dude that kind of sort of doesn't wish he had a little Josie Wales in him. I mean, I'm being honest. I mean, there's not a dude listening to my voice that doesn't wish he had a little bit of that Josie Wells swagger. And that was centered around what? I mean, he was, uh, he was, uh, you know, six shooters and guns and shootouts and the OK Corral and John Wayne and all these other um, sorts of things. And I think that permeates American culture and society, despite what the left has tried to do by, you know, making gun ownership dishonorable. Uh, you know how those crazy rednecks and hillbillies and, and hayseeds are. You want to get shot, go to a NASCAR track. Well, I mean, there, uh, uh, let, let's for argument's sake, let's say there's a bunch of hillbillies, hayseeds, and rednecks at a NASCAR track. How many people get in Chicago will get shot this weekend, and how many will get shot at the race in Phoenix? I mean, there's no telling how many race fans in Phoenix will have open carry and concealed carry, but how many people will get shot at, at Phoenix at a racetrack or the infield? I mean, there'll be a fist fight or two. There'll be somebody getting too drunk disorderly. I mean, that always happens <laughs> at a race, and there may even be, for God's sake, a Confederate flag flown, uh, not in the proper spirit, not in honor of the Confederacy, but rather as a symbol of racism. But, but how many people on the infield at Phoenix with a bunch of hayseeds, hillbillies, and rednecks that own guns will get shot and killed? And then how many on the streets of Chicago with? The liberally governed streets of Chicago, the anti-gun government of Chicago. And, and I just think when Obama got elected, that percentage of people who believed the government was genuinely coming after your gun quadrupled 
increased by a thousand percent. I mean, there's no telling how many more people, I don't know, man. I mean, I don't trust that guy. And this gun shop down the street has two guns and I got a little money to the bank. And just to be safe, just on the side of caution, I'm going to buy them damn guns just so I'll have them in my house in case, in case something ever comes our way that I need to defend myself, my property, and, uh, and obviously my, my family. 843-661-0937. Let's take a break. We've got two callers. We'll get back to you on the other side. I am, I mean, I'll let you know the secret. I am scared to death of scary movies. <laughs> I am petrified of scary movies. I don't go to scary movies. I'll go to a movie and they'll play these trailers of real horror movies. Right. And I, I mean, I look at my wife like, I mean, good Lord. I mean, I came to watch a, a comedy and they got some six-year-old girl possessed by, you know, uh, the, the Satan himself. And I mean, they're cutting heads off and butchering. And I'm like, I didn't, wow. Put the popcorn down for about, <laughs> you know, uh, for about six minutes. And let's get through these next two horrific trailers. Who else feels that way? I mean, I go to a comedy and I have to sit through eight minutes of trailers that just scare the living bejesus out I, of me. I ain't bothered by the scary trailers. I just, the trailers in general is like, Disturbing. I mean, disturbing on. would be a better word. It don't bother me. Well, I mean, you, you, so, so you can't find a better plot than some eight-year-old you know, oh, beautiful little like girl being possessed I mean, by Satan and she style. wants to kill her parents. No, I want to laugh. I came to watch a comedy, but I got to watch six minutes of three trailers of, you know, children being possessed by the devil and killing their parents on a vacation. Oh, wow. Yeah. But, but you know, we're the problem, not not Hollywood. But, I, but I, did, <laughs> I did notice you, you look like you felt a little uneasy when the Halloween well, music played that's, a second that's ago. Jason. You kind of sat still, up in your chair. He's like, still Ooh. out there somewhere. <laughs> he's still out there somewhere. I think he's on the other side of that dirt road in Pamplico. If you know what I'm talking about, there's a big pine tree. Leans over the road. Mm-hmm. The second dirt road. <laughs> the second, the first one, the second one. There's a barn there. There's a book barn on the other. But the second dirt road beside that book barn, that's that's where Jason, I'm convinced, was last spotted. Let's go to the phone. Joe in Hartsville. Good morning, Joe. Yeah, good morning, guys. This this whole thing about guns, even though I do take it very seriously, every life is precious. People that bring up gun confiscation, and that's all it is, every dictator in the world has talked, that's the first thing they do is take guns away from the citizenship. And we can have a conversation, but if you go to the CBC website, I think the highest number on average is about 48,000 a year are killed by guns. And over half of those are suicide. So you're looking around 20-something thousand, maybe 22, 23,000 at the most. Let's put it like this. More people die from a hammer and a screwdriver than they do from a rifle. So when they say, well, we got to take away the assault rifle, that's less than 3% of all deaths from firearms. So when they take away the assault rifle, they'll go, oh, well, nothing's changed. So now we've got to take away the handgun. You see what I'm saying? It's a progression. That's why they call them progressives. So it's all right to, to leave the border open. And 100,000 people die a year from fentanyl overdoses. But 
we can't have something that is an inalienable right, which is mama bears in the cave with her two baby bears walking there and mess with her baby bears and see what happens. That's an inalienable right of self-defense. So people that talk about guns and gun control, that's not a serious conversation. Hell, we lose a 1,000 people a year in South Carolina on the highways due to drunk driving or wrecks on the interstates or these wonderful secondary roads we have. But yet they want to talk about something that that affects less than one-tenth of one percent of the population. Y'all have a good one. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate that. 843-661-0937. Someone's there. Let's go to the phone. Anthony in North Carolina. Good morning, Anthony. You're on. Hey, morning, fellas. Uh, Ken, it was Michael Myers for me. Uh, Jason was was all right, but Michael Myers, <laughs> something about him, they, um, they got me. Yeah, I'm scared of him, too. But, uh, okay. <laughs> yeah. I, I was getting ready this morning. I heard y'all talking about college football. And, Ken, okay, as a brother, as a brother, uh, a lot of these schools that we look at, Oregon, Alabama, a lot of them, for decades, would not let black people come to their school. They realized that bringing some black athletes, I believe Alabama or Oklahoma, Oklahoma was the first one, and we could win some some um, championships. So then all of them started doing it. And then as you see it now, most schools, the predominantly white schools, even Colorado, 95% of the student population is white, but they bring in the black athletes. So long story short is that they're still making money off our backs of black athletes. None of these schools wouldn't even really be on TV if if all the black athletes went to the HBCUs like it was back in the days, and the white people went to the PWIs. But they know that this money thing, and, and plus by, like Kobe Bryant from Philadelphia, from the neighborhood, everybody took care of the neighborhood, everybody, hey, Kobe, you know what I'm saying? Oh, you can do it, you can make it when you get bigger. Give them money, the churches, churches and everything. As soon as Kobe make it, he married that white woman. I ain't, I ain't being racist though, but she takes uh, takes him way across country. This uh, this happens to most of our black athletes. When you marry that white person or messy or whatever, everybody in your community that that that, that raised you coming up. Whenever you get that money, and you're like Kobe, you having to die or get divorced or whatever. Nobody in your family or your community sees the profit of what they put into you raising you. All that money goes to her and her family, and she can decide, like she's doing with Kobe Bryant parents, what to give and what not to give them. That's the same thing that happens to most of our athletes that, that's going to these predominantly white schools in college, that if they wasn't that big that good of an athlete, that school would not accept them to even come to their school. So a lot of these schools are getting these big contracts and everything, but off the back of the, the black people. But well, Anthony, Anthony I, I for, refer I refer to college football as the last plantation model. I mean that in essence, that's what it is. I mean, and and, and I'm with you. I mean, and, and I'll say as a white dude, the 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 exploitation of the African American male athlete has made white presidents and athletic directors and college football coaches wealthier than they ever imagined they would be. So so I you know I've always believed that the African-American young man who plays college football, in this case, is being taken advantage of, exploited 
to a degree that we should all be ashamed of. Okay, and one more quick thing. Um, I hear on your show a lot, you talk about victimhood, like white people feeling guilty for the slavery, uh, black people using victimhood of slavery for uh, reparations. Though, but I never heard anybody say the victimhood of Jews in the Holocaust. But as I was looking at it, I was looking at, at a short of a day, and it was a Palestinian woman and a Jewish woman. They were going at it. I mean, just going at it, but it, it was a good debate, a good show. It's called, uh, it was on, a, uh, there's a comedian called Godfrey. Uh, he, um, he do a lot of uh, um, voice impressions, but he had it on his podcast, and, and they were going at it good, and, and at the end of it, Ken, both of them kind of made each other look stupid because the woman that was a Jew, she said that this is our land, biblically, and this and that, and the other woman said, yes, you are right. Y'all were there 2,000 years ago, so now y'all come back to claim y'all holy land, but answer anthropologists or whatever you call them, that um, bigger bones and stuff, they done dug them up and say that the bones there were African bones. So, like I said before about the greatest identity theft ever, they get disposed with it. Yes, it's God, laid by God for 2,000 years ago that the Jews was there and they took the weight, but it wasn't those people. They dug up the bones and the bones were African people because but, well, you already know, but Ken, y'all have a good day. I, I hope I ain't make nobody upset, but I love calling your show with even a uh, uh, um, different opinion. I would <laughs> never call your show and, and kill time and say, say exactly what you said. Yeah, Ken, you was right. You was right. Why would I call your show saying what you said? Because you already said it, so I heard it. So I always, I love your callers that call there with something different to say than what you say. You know, y'all have a good day, sir. Thank you, Anthony. You're always welcome. Always welcome to call and take exception with something uh, the host says. You know, Anthony and I are kind of in lockstep on the exploitation of the African-American male college athlete. I mean, I totally buy into that. Um, and once again, I understand the argument. Well, the African-American male athlete got a scholarship to prepare him for gainful employment. Fair enough. Fair enough. I mean, th th there's value in that. Th there's no question about it. But I think the word fair has to come in play. Is the student athlete being treated fair or fairly when the college coach gets $10 million, the assistant coach gets $2 million, the athletics director gets over a million, the university participates in a billion-dollar TV bonanza? I just think the athlete, the worker, the performer, in this case, is being relegated to last in line. He's the most important person in the dynamic. We don't have football games if we don't have football players, Right. I mean, they, they, you know, they're the ones out there. I mean, they're practicing every day. They're playing the game on Saturday. I mean, they love the game. I get it. It's uh, it's something they hope to pursue as a as a livelihood one of these days. I understand that. Um, but but I just think that it got so out of balance that the dam burst, and the kid and the kid's family probably had many conversations about. You know, do you know what your coach makes? Do you know what your assistant coach makes? Do you know what your your school signed as a conference television partner? And, I mean, I, I know we're getting, you know, a scholarship worth X, and it's a degree in basket weaving or, you know, philosophy or no no knock on uh, philosophy and no knock on Shakespeare. I mean, I use those as examples of, you know, where do you go get a job if you got a degree in, in Shakespearean theater? I guess you go read poetry and get paid. But, um, but anyway, I, I, we can really go down the road. I am willing to accept. The debate of, um, you know, the land squabble. I mean, it's 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 biblical. It's it's ancient. 
I mean, it, the Palestinians and the Jews and Israel being the Holy Land, the reestablishment of the Jewish state in 1948. I, you know, where should the Gaza Strip border be? Where should the West Bank's border? I mean, I, those are fair debates. But Hamas is a terrorist organization. I mean, they're not anti-colonial defiers. I mean, they're terrorists, and they must be dealt with as terrorists are dealt with, and that means killed. I mean, you've got to exterminate that evil force from the planet, and that's what the I think the Jews and the Israeli army are going to try and do, remove as much of that terrorist element in Gaza as they possibly can for however long it takes. Will innocent people be killed? Yes. Is that sad and tragic? Yes. But in war, things aren't perfect. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. <laughs> a little scared, and, are you? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, Eddie Murphy had a bit. I'll probably get in trouble doing this, but Eddie Murphy had a bit about the difference in black people and white people. And you're talking about horror films. And, you know, you remember the bit I'm talking about. Eddie Murphy said, that a white family hears an unusual sound in the attic, and the the father goes, "Let's get upstairs and see if we can find out <laughs> what that, that is." Out. Yeah, <laughs> and the, and the black father says, "I mean, we ain't buying this house. <laughs> We're out of here." Um, yeah, I, I, I'm a white guy, but but I, I I'm with the black father in that depiction <laughs> that Eddie Murphy gives, and there you know that there is no racism in uh, in that humorous comment. Let's go to the phone. Tony Calhoun County, listening to WTQS. Uh, good morning, Tony. Uh, good morning, gentlemen. Um, in 1995, the, uh, there was an investigation into the Clintons about Whitewater, and all those records were stored in the Alpha P. Murrow Federal Building, and we all know what happened to that building. On the 9th of September 2001, the Defense Secretary came out and said that the U.S. Department of Defense could not account for $1.5 trillion dollars and two days later, a plane allegedly hit the Pentagon exactly where those records were stored. Uh, in view of that, perhaps somebody should tell Comer and Johnson not to store the Biden documents in any one location. Um, secondly, about, um, about Israel, um, the Jews left enslavement. They traveled across the desert. Um, they made it to the promised land. Well, there were already people there, people who had a prior claim to that land. You know, so the Jews didn't have any original claim to the land. Um, and I don't know, you know, I'm not a historian. I don't know what happened all during the time period. Um, in 1917, um, Balfour came out with a declaration written to uh, Lord Rothschild of the Rothschild Bank, uh, the Bank of England fame. And... It expressed sympathies for the Jewish for a Jewish state to be built in Palestine, um, but it literally says in the document it says, uh, "Dear Lord Rothschild, I have much pleasure in conveying to you, on behalf of His Majesty's government, the following declaration of sympathy with Jewish Zionist aspirations, which have been submitted to and approved by the cabinet. His Majesty's government view with favor the establishment in Palestine." of a national home for the Jewish people. So in other words, they themselves admit that the land is Palestinian. Um, if, if you look at the um, Geneva Conventions, the forces of Palestine are liberation forces, they're not terrorist forces. 
Um, if you look at the definition of terrorism, it's the use of violence to inflict terror to elicit a specific political change. Um, so when you call the Hamas terrorists, are they really terrorists or are they you know, liberation forces? And, you know, I'm not an expert at this, but it seems to me that they're liberation forces doing some damn distasteful things, trying to liberate their country. That's all I had. Thank you, Tony. Appreciate that. I take great exception with Tony's last comments. They are terrorists. Um, I mean, if you talk about the U.N. Council and security councils and what the, uh, the, the British, you know, mandate and I mean, go back, I mean, a thousand B.C., King David authorized Israel under Jewish rule. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, I mean, that predates what the U.N. did. That predates what any of these international organizations may or may not have done. That predates Truman declaring Israel as the Jewish state. I mean, you have a biblical worldview or you don't. And you accept that in 1000 B.C., which, which once again predates, pretty significantly predates, I just, it, it's bizarre to me, and it's not that we're talking about Israel. I mean, if we were arguing about Jews don't have any right to live in Gaza, Jews don't have any right to live in, in the West Bank, but, but, but Hamas says Jews don't have any right to live. Forget Gaza, forget the West Bank. Jews don't have any right to live. That's not anti-colonization. That's terrorism, and it must be confronted as terrorism. Let's go to the phone. Joe in Florence. Hi, Joe, you're on the air. Um, yes, good morning. Well, uh, Ken, certainly uh, I agree with the fact that Hamas is engaging in terrorist activities, but as a concept— But they're in the I business don't... of terrorism. That is their business. That is that is what keeps them functioning. I mean, it's not some organization that meets on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday and draws up a terrorist plan and then does their own— I mean, they don't play bingo Tuesday and Thursday— and practice terror. They are a terrorist organization. Every ounce of energy invested in their world is about terrorizing. Right. And and if we kill all of them, I believe another generation of young men are going to subscribe to that ideology and be the next wave of terrorists. Just like the the men who fought in World War II against the Germans were a different generation than fought the Germans in World War One, but we were fighting for the principles of American freedom. Um, now, Persia, you know, Iran, Persia is one of the great societies of history. And so I don't think, you know, that the Iranians think that an adolescent society like America should necessarily show them how to uh, how to behave. Now, I guess what I'm getting at is we need more of a permanent solution. One of the solutions that I kind of like was when the British gave up Hong Kong back to the Chinese, they had a 10-year plan. They transitioned to a change in geopolitical modern history from older uh, British colonization history, and we haven't had any problems in Hong Kong because I think it was a long-term solution. And, and I think if we don't get a long-term solution in places like Taiwan or in places like the Middle East, we're just waiting for the next wave of young men to become terrorists called Hamas or Hezbollah or anything else that they feel they want to do or they have a right to do. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate that. Um, or Jim. I'm sorry, Jim. Appreciate that Joe. call. Eight, four, it, was it, it, Joe? it was Joe. Okay, I'm sorry, Joe, Jim. Um, who's keeping tabs? <laughs> 
843-661-0937. Sure you do. Um, I, I kind of agree with Joe. And this is this is the kind of thing I wanted to address the last caller. I forget his name, but he was talking about how Hamas aren't terrorists. And uh, Tony. Tony, right. Um, this is kind of the point I brought up originally was I'm not a fan of this moralization language. Like which side has the moral high ground in this thing? And and if you want to debate that, that's fine. I'm sure there is one who's more right than the other. But I do think that it's important to kind of step back and say, are Hamas like fighting to liberate the Palestinian people? Yes. Are they terrorists? Yes. You can you can be both you can have good qualities and you can have bad qualities at the same time. You can say, yes, it is bad to hate Jewish people simply for the fact that they are Jewish. The liberation of the Palestinians means what to you, Josh? To me, that... Uh, Is it the abolishment of the Jewish state? No. I mean, can the Palestinians be liberated and Israel remain a Jewish state? I think a two-state solution is the best option, but I but I don't think either side wants that. Both sides want the other one gone. Maybe well, not completely well, gone, me, but gone. But give me an example. Hold on to that. Let's take a break. Don't want to get too far behind here. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. 843-661-0937 is our number. Dr. Will Bolt, history chair, Francis Marion University, and Tennessee volunteer fan. He's rocking the orange this morning, that um different shade of orange. <laughs> it, it's still, you know, orange is just my least favorite color because of, obviously, the Clemson Tigers and that rivalry, but Tennessee grates on me uh, as well. <laughs> at times. So, sorry about that. And my wife always yells at me, you, you can't wear the orange because people are going to think you're Clemson. It's like, well, no, it's, 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 a, it's a different shade. It's, 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 a, it's a burnt orange. So, no, yeah. no, that, that's Texas, but it's just, it's, it's creamsicle. I don't know. Yeah. It's, I'm sure it's trademarked and patented, but it's, it's, it's the color of a winner. So. I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure. Okay. Okay. <laughs> oh, very nice. Sorry. Is, is somebody on the phone? Yes. Let's go there. Bert in Florence. Good morning, Bert. Good morning. I, I just wanted to point out something just because you're you're recording there of how far back, you know, biblical days and all that. The Egyptians wrote before the Exodus story about Moses as the prince of the desert and about the Jews as the evil ones that were not under slavery but were corrupting their world. This was before Exodus, and they had kicked out of their lands and if you look at even the bible story they went in and took that land from someone else so for them to say they have like first dibs on it i guess it depends on where you look because you know way later way later you know everybody called the uh the vikings you know barbarians and they were they were they were basically the terrorists of that day but go before that they were peaceful farmers and the christians went in and took their land and destroyed their trees and, you know, created that situation. So whether they're, whether this person or that person is a terrorist depends on what point in history you're looking at and how long they've been fighting that war. So both sides could easily be called terrorists in this situation. Wow. Thank you, Bert. Appreciate that. It's kind of interesting how, we, I mean, once again, I accept, and I mean, Bert's, Bert said he doesn't have a biblical worldview. His interpretation of the Bible is fundamentally different than mine. I mean, when he talks about what the Egyptians wrote, I'm saying, well, where is that in the Bible? What book and chapter and, uh, and scripture is that referring to? Um, I mean, it's a complicated ordeal. There is no denying that. 
I mean, it is unbelievably complicated. You could easily argue, Dr. Bolt. I mean, you're an American history professor, but you're uh, worldly uh, of, of the uh, of the history of the of the world, and uh, to some degree, I am. But it's probably the most complicated <laughs> land battle in the history of mankind. Who right. is the right. rightful owner? It, of the territory that we now declares Israel. It goes back to just a couple of years. Right? Yeah, you know, sure. Thousands of years we've been trying to untangle, unsort this. Smarter guys than us have tried to come up with a solution and haven't been able to do it. So I, I don't know. At the end of the day, what's the end game for everybody involved? Is it some sort of a two-state solution? Again, I don't know. I guess that's what sort of seems as to would be the best compromise. But again, how do we get there? What okay, concessions? But, okay, let's stay there with me for a second. So this two-state solution has been a part of the discussion debate for as long as I've been yeah. alive. Yes, indeed. I mean, when I first became aware and tried to better understand, you know, okay, I'm not Jewish, I'm not Palestinian, but they've got this squabble, and they've always had this squabble. And Truman declares that he recognizes Israel as right. the Jewish state at the right end of away. the Second World War in 1948. Um, but but it, it's always seemed to me that that one side is interested in a two-state solution, and a certain segment of the other side is not interested at all. I don't have any idea where the border for Gaza right. should be right. or where the border for the West Bank should be. How big Israel? How many acres yeah. should Israel have? I, I don't know that. I don't have any idea about that. But, but the point I'm trying to make is every time there seems to be a little positive momentum toward a two-state solution, and if you remember the last two years, Israel and Saudi Arabia right, have right. had very productive conversations yeah about ending the violence, I mean, ending no. the jihad, ending the let, let, let's sit down and debate where the border should be, where the lines should be drawn. Can we live peacefully one with another? And every time it seems that some of the Muslim world are trying mm-hmm. to make a deal with some of the Jewish world, there is an element within the, the Muslim faith that you and I would refer to as Islamic jihadists yeah. that said, no way, we're going down that road. And I believe that the attack on Israel several weeks ago, was a result of Saudi Arabia and Israel having constructive conversations about a two-state solution. I'm sure it wasn't a coincidence. All right, just the timing of it, for sure. And all right, I think, as as to your point, there are certain individuals who who don't want a solution. They just, the the chaos is good for them. They want dead Jews. They want that. Let's be honest, they want dead Jews. Most of the reporting suggests that this is what Hamas is all about. It's, it is a, a terrorist organization that wants to wipe the Jews off of the face of the earth. And so certainly I heard somebody say the, uh, the other day, if the Canadians came down and invaded the United States of America, would we be worried about uh, the niceties, civilian and casualties? I mean, absolutely not. The Jews have every right. The Israelis have every right to defend themselves. And so at least that's, that's my opinion. That's how I see the thing. And again, it says, right, we were on the brink of sort of having a big, a monumental landmark agreement between Israeli and Saudi Arabia. And now that's that's pushed that's pushed back. Who knows? It'll be a decade, perhaps, we get back to that. And so, so how do we argue that the Jews are not interested in a two-state solution when there seem to be constructive conversations going on with they along with Saudi right. Arabia? And Saudi Arabia is not Iran. Saudi Arabia no. is not Palestine <laughs> or Palestinians. I mean, they're, they're, it's, a, it's a more edgy element in in the Muslim population. Josh and I had this conversation last weekend. We didn't discuss over the airways, but Josh, one of the considerations you and I uh, don't have an answer to and would love to know, where is the Muslim condemnation? Um, I mean, I I don't have any idea what percentage of Muslims are Islamic jihadists. You don't know. I'd like to believe it's a small percentage, 
but it's significant enough to blow buildings up and kill innocent people. Where is the condemnation in the Muslim world when something happens like happened uh, in Israel? And, and that, that's my concern. Uh, I don't know what percentage of Muslims will fly airplanes into buildings or cut the heads off children uh, in, in the name of jihad and some religious fanatical war. But, but I, I just, I'm waiting for Muslims who are in leadership positions around the world to condemn that. To me, that is a gigantic first step toward a two-state solution because it is a, a, a Jewish-Muslim part of the world. And right, there hasn't been very much condemnation or criticism of what happened. Has Everybody, there been any, Dr. Bolt? I was trying to think. I, I couldn't think. Couldn't think of I any. Mean, the silence perhaps tells you a lot by that point. You know, it's almost a complicit agreement with what's going on. So it, it is unfortunate. Perhaps this would have been a, a moment for a moderate individual to sort of seize this uh, and establish a leadership role and perhaps maybe try and broker something grand and something long-lasting so that these lives weren't lost in vain. But, I mean, with what's going on right now, it's just it's it's a repetitive cycle. We've seen the same song and dance for many years. There'll probably be some sort of a temporary truce, but maybe five years we're going to be back here having the same argument again. And you expect Israel to aggressively hunt down the members of Hamas? Oh, I think once all of this is over, anybody who had any knowledge or was friends with somebody who was complicit planned this. I mean, the Mossad, they, they get their individuals. It may take them a little while, but those guys are going to have a, a sore neck from watching their back for the rest of their lives. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Mike in Darlington. Hi, Mike. You're on. Uh, good morning. Uh, I, uh, I, I believe you uh, have a serious situation and my personal belief is that you it, you can make peace with some people for a period of time, but these uh, I think it's going to be solved the same way uh, Alexander solved the Gordian knot, just whip out the sword and cut through it. It's going to take the sword to solve this problem. And that's a sad thing and a tragic thing. But I think uh, that's the way it's going to go. But what I really wanted to talk to uh, Dr. Bold about was when uh, the Carolinas were fi- were founded, I discovered that John Locke accordingly uh, worked, worked for uh, Anthony Ashley Cooper, one of the Lord Protectors, the Chief Lord Protector of Carolinas, and uh, wrote part of the original Constitution yes. that, that granted uh, indentured servants uh, – uh, hundred acres of land and the right to vote. Uh, I thought that was a phenomenal thing uh, in this new world. Of course, there were a lot of uh, indigenous tribes out there, the Yamasee and the Cherokee and the Choctaw, that uh, thought maybe that uh, that land might have belonged to them. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate but, that. Let uh, me ask you this, Dr. Bolt. Sure. What is the biggest difference? I mean, America being kind of the um, the carrier of the era of enlightenment. I mean, America was heavily influenced by the age of enlightenment, the era of enlightenment, whatever you want to refer to it. Locke's (laughs) writings had a big influence on Jefferson. Jefferson's fingerprints are on the country, probably more than anybody's, including Washington or Lincoln or any of the other very relevant and important political figures. But what did the world look like prior to the age of enlightenment? And what, what, what biggest changes were made as we, I don't know, became, (sighs) 
more scholarly, more <laughs> educated, more in tuned with human rights and dignity and humanity and and some of the things Locke wrote a lot about. Again, this was a world you you probably wouldn't gonna wouldn't want to go back to. These were kings and monarchs who had complete and total control uh, over the daily lives. You didn't have religious freedom. And so if there might be a, a Protestant on the throne and then of a sudden he dies and a Catholic ascends, you have to either convert or flee. You didn't have religious freedom. And if you stood by your religious beliefs, you'd be executed, be burned at the stake Guillotines. for this. So if you're right, if you were lucky, that's a quick, clean, humane form of punishment, Getting checking out being burned at the stake. Uh, I can think of better ways to go than that, right? If you're lucky, you inhale the, the, the smoke inhalation. If not, uh, you're a crispy critter after a couple of seconds. So, all right, this was the world that the, the people lived in. And again, the, the John Locke, Rousseau, the great Enlightenment thinkers said that, uh, you know, we, democracy, we've had this before with the Greeks and the Romans. It worked for a little while. It's, it's, worth, it's worth trying this out again. And again, guys like Jefferson, Madison, big, big proponents read this stuff, memorized it. I mean, can you imagine political philosophy just being able to quote it chapter and verse? I mean, nowadays we'd roll your eyes. Uh, at somebody like this. But this, again, this was the world they lived in. And then th- they they all knew this stuff. This was how you sort of, uh, the ticket to the club, you know, if you knew this stuff off the back of your hand. And these ideas of civil liberties, again, the, the stuff that we take for granted nowadays in America. Again, this was new. This was this was a, something that hadn't been tried in over a thousand years in the world. Most people thought that it would fail in America and that we would revert to some sort of a a monarchy, or at best, a mixed government, and we proved all of the naysayers wrong, and the American experiment in democracy continues to inspire. I mean, everybody else in the world wants what we have here in the United States of America. We continue to be this great beacon, this city on a hill. So, so this is where I put your job in jeopardy every week. <laughs> so let's, let's, I mean, let's be judgmental for a second. I mean, it's easy for me to do, got to be hard for you to do, but you know, I thank you, Tinder. Um, so you're good to go. Don't worry about your job. I, I got you. As I say, it's been a good run. I, yeah, I got you, I've got you taken care of. It's your fault you come every Tuesday. You're glutton for punishment, so here we go. Is it fair to say that the Middle East predominantly resists the era of enlightenment and Israel being an extension of Western, Western culture that has been heavily influenced by the, the, the enlightenment period is, is, is somewhat contrary? Yeah, to maybe, that part of the world. Well, forget about my job. I was I was worried about my life driving in with all the scary music <laughs> that you were playing this morning. But yeah, whether or not it's something just in the DNA or if it's just the luck of the draw, a series of circumstances, Israel is the outlier. There is the, It is a, a representative democracy. And in most of the other areas of the Middle East, you, you don't have this at all. There's very limited democracy, essentially totalitarian dictatorships. Uh, or again, you have to conform or be cast out. Uh, I mean, there's just have still barbaric punishments for people who sort of march to the beat of their own drummer. Uh, the United States of America, we've kind of gotten in bed with some of these these nations from time to time, just for geopolitical well, I mean, for oil. reasons. Is exactly we can we can say it. We all know how that how that story ends. But again, Israel just and, and, and some would say that the Turks have maybe up until recently uh, have had a more of a democracy. They're at least a secular. A nation for sure, sort of similar to they us. Read a, they read a little of Locke. They so, didn't read Locke's they, 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 entire... they didn't make it to the end, <laughs> but yeah, they got a good. They got halfway through it, so they gave the old college try. But but I mean, and, to me, know. that is one of the central conflict points in this in this region of the world. You've got an outpost of the Western world in Israel who have been heavily influenced by the the Enlightenment period, right, and you've got another. And I don't want to say the Dark Ages, but you've got some of these Muslim nations that have just refused to 
embrace right. Just a, some of the human rights issues. A couple hundred years behind the curve. Yeah, maybe more than a couple hundred years. Yeah, maybe yeah. four or five hundred years behind the curve. Uh, we'll take a break. Right. We'll be Thanks, back guys. in just a few moments. 843-661-0937. Dr. Will Bold, History Chair, Francis Marion University, is with us. I want to say this real quick. I think the debate we're having about Israel and Hamas and Hezbollah and Gaza and West Bank and Saudi Arabia, a lot of this is philosophical. I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to make a determination on what America should or should not do. I mean, I am still not advocating. I am a, I mean, I, historically, I have been a neocon. I'll admit that. I was heavily influenced and in believing in kind of the Reagan doctrine and then the Bush doctrine. And, you know, America has a responsibility to police the world. I still believe in the kind of the philosophical debate of the biblical worldview and its relevance in that part of the world. But, but I'm still not willing to say, you know, let's put boots on the ground and help Israel defeat Hamas in, in Gaza. I am as non-interventionist as I've ever been because I just don't trust people making decisions about what military assets to deploy or how many American young men or women, um, you know, are willing to die in Israel or, or Ukraine. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Sam in Darlington, you are on the air with Dr. Bolt. Thank you. Morning. Uh, Dr. Bold, I have a question that's kind of off the subject, but mm. something I've been uh, thinking about. Uh, the Electoral College, uh, that, uh, that it's all winner-take-all for each state except for Nebraska and Maine. And Maine, they, yep. give, they give, uh, you know, let the... Let like a the, district or something, yeah, you can get a, yeah, a steal one or two yeah, up there. Congressional district, you know. So... I, you know, the Electoral College, a lot of people, a lot of young people don't see any reason for that. I think it's a good thing, but I think um, we might lose it unless we maybe do something like Nebraska and Maine, and because that's more fair. Um, like in South Carolina, we got nine electoral votes. Two of them correspond to the two senators, and seven of them correspond to the seven representatives. Uh, it seems to me maybe you give the two ones that correspond to the senators to the winner of the state. But as for the rest of them, I mean, 30% of the citizens of South Carolina vote for probably the Democrat. You know, well, yeah. I, think, I think the Democratic candidate deserves, uh, well, the people of South Carolina deserve to have some of their electoral votes counted the way they really think. And, and I, I don't see why we couldn't do that. I, I, well, I know why we can't do it. They're political parties. They like to play for the high stakes. You know? Yes. Oh, yes. But anyway, I just wonder what your opinion No, a, a lot of people have sort of talked about sort of having a, a proportional system uh, across the system instead of the winner-take-all. This would force candidates. A Republican could go into California with the expectation that he could pick up a series of electoral votes uh, by carrying some of the, the Orange County districts, if you will. Democrats could, of course, wouldn't have to write off sort of the rural. They, w they wouldn't write off South Carolina uh, at this time. Some of the states they've, we've taken for granted, Ohio and Florida, and you can sort of carve out. It would make things very, very intriguing and interesting. Uh, I, I would be in favor of that. I think it would greatly expand the map. And again, it forces us to sort of reevaluate how we conduct our campaigns and how we study these elections. Uh, whether or not we're going to get to that, each of the states could make that decision. So you don't need a constitutional amendment to kind of do that. Uh, 
you know, maybe if, if a couple to do it, it might start some dominoes. They might start falling. There's a lot of people that are kind of getting upset with this. If Donald Trump is to win again, I think there's a very good chance he will, he's probably not going to win the, the popular vote. And so the Republicans sort of, it, it's not a good look if you keep winning the presidency but don't win the popular vote. This just sort of increases calls for to making drastic change, to abolish it, which would require a constitutional amendment. I don't think uh, we're even close to that yet. But right, just sort of making some change again, putting more areas in play, uh, I would certainly be in favor of that. Who was the architect of the Electoral College? Who was insistent that that be a part of how we elect a president? Yeah, well, it's it's one of the, maybe you can call it one of the black eyes for the founding fathers. They put the Electoral College in between you and I, the voters. Mm-hmm. They didn't trust us with this this most popular uh, idea of picking our most important leader, the president of the United States. The, the colony in the state of Maryland had a sort of a system of electors where they, they picked their senators. And so this is where they the founding fathers kind of borrowed or stole it from. But again, it tells you a lot about the conservative nature that uh, we're not really 100 percent sure. We're just going to just to make sure you don't pick some really, really loony, some weird individual to be president. We've got this uh, electoral college in there just in case. Let me ask you a question. So we're talking about, I mean, what, what uh, Sam's bringing up is somewhat of a, um, I mean, it'd be a weighted formula. Right. If, if the Republican gets 60% of the vote in South Carolina, he gets 60%. Or maybe just uh, each of the districts. Yeah. And then whoever wins the state gets the, the other two for the senators. But doesn't, doesn't I mean, I got to believe that conservatives all over America would find that disadvantageous to them winning uh, the presidency. And that's when right. they would start saying, well, okay, if, if that's, I mean, if we're going to really change radically the way we elect a president, I want, um, I want people who pay more taxes to have a higher percentage of the vote. People who don't pay, uh, who people who net out zero or, or, or get more from the government than they, than they to. give, you know, it, you see where I'm headed. I mean, yeah. it's not going to be as simple as changing the electoral college no. to a more weighted formula. There are going to be a lot of other opinions yeah. as part of that uh, but discussion. It, but again, though, this can be done at the state level. You don't need to do this in Washington. So each of the state legislatures could say, you know, hey, man, if you're maybe in a, a Democratic-leaning state, New York, and from time to time the Republicans at the state level have been able to run well, they take control of the legislature. They could pass a bill and say, hey, these are how the votes are going to be awarded. And so now suddenly, uh, instead of right knowing you're going to get all of the votes from New York, New York continues to lose Oh, but the, the 26, 27, whatever New York gets, now suddenly the right Republicans can pick up a half dozen. And again, that's that's in a, in a tight election where we are right now. Every vote counts. I mean, look at both parties. That was one vote in Nebraska in Maine. Uh, they're carpet bombing those just as, as a hedge, if you will. So. And, and you got to believe, I mean, having run campaigns and been candidate a candidate for public office, I mean, you would change strategy. Oh, my God, I mean, yes. the Republicans don't spend any money in California yep. because they know they're wasting their money. Well, if, if you go to a weighted system, the Republicans would make a calculus that, hey, I mean, if we get 41% of the vote in California, we get 41% of the electoral college. Yeah, so you really begin changing your strategy, and it becomes, I mean, the Democrats are, you're not going to see a lot of Biden ads in South Carolina. No. no you're no. not going to see any Trump ads in, in California, but under Sam and your compromise, <laughs> you see a lot of different ways candidates you know, run for office. how different you think about things if you're knowing you. All right. Instead of the Democrats, what is it? Fifty-five in California, it's 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 forty to fifteen, right? You know, thirty thirty to twenty. You know, it, it changes. It changes everything. And certainly, the flip side is Texas wouldn't be as much of a big Republican win either. 
But again, you'd, you'd force guys, the, the the political guys, you'd really have to think outside of the box. Who, whoever was quicker on their feet and could adapt uh, could really set themselves up. So it would be fascinating. Again, I think we're just kind of we're kind of stuck in this rut where it look it's the same two candidates, the same states cycle in, cycle out. So this is a way to kind of just inject some some new blood into it. But can you do that and maintain the order of the Senate? I mean, if we go to weighted electoral college voting, why does Wyoming get the same number of senators that California does? Well, again, it, it all goes back to this idea of equality. And so that, all right, in the House, it's going to be based on population. But in the Senate, each of the states are going, this is where we're going to have this idea of equality. It's sort of weird, right, in the state of Wyoming, uh, it's easier to get elected to the Senate than it is to the House of Representatives. And so just one of those weird, weird little quirks. Uh, no matter what formula they come up with, the Democrats aren't going to get a vote in Wyoming yeah. at this time. Let's go to the phone. Someone there? Yes. Joel in Mullins, you are on with Dr. Bolt. Thank you. Course, Dr. Sir. Bolt, one of the things that, that has uh, concerned me about changing the Electoral College is that it seems to be in line with the founders not wanting the majority to squash the minority. And one of the things that uh, bothers me is that if we go and just say something like uh, a popular vote, then the president's going to be chosen by the people of California right. and New England. Yes, oh, for sure. Okay. So uh, there's got to be another way. I, I have no problem with the electoral system, but the popular vote for sure is out. No, no. <laughs> no, no, if it's, just, if it's just the straight popular vote in New York, California, I mean, that's where you spend all of your time and you forget about the flyover states in South Carolina, uh, the, the few million people that we have here, it's, it's, it's almost inconsequential. It becomes a, uh, it becomes a, uh, an election where 30 states just don't get the time of day. Areas, yes. Yeah. You just don't pay any attention to these areas that, you know, deserve consideration from, yeah. from the guests complicated. I mean, everything oh, we sure. talk about here is complicated. <laughs> if it's not, we try to make it. take a break back in a few. So, so which is that from, I mean, what, that is from The Shining. Okay. Oh, that's another scary movie that I didn't see. My problem, I mean, I don't go to scary movies. But you, you never have seen The Shining? What do we No. I don't that's mind. a good one. Yeah. The, that's a classic. I remember, what is it, Friday 13th, 3D? 3D? Uh, no, a, a group of us got drunk <laughs> and went, and went well, to the movie. Well, I mean, no, we went to see Friday the 13th in 3D, and I had to get up and go to the bathroom and when I came back, everybody looked alike. They had them damn glasses on, and I got lost. And I couldn't find my I couldn't find my seat because I looked like okay, the guy with the green sweat, but he's got a man. And all I saw was these glasses, oh. and I'd been partaking, um, and you know, I was like walking around the theater, sit down, let me get out of the way, get out of the way. I'm like, everybody looks alike, man. Everybody's got these glasses on, and I was a bit disoriented, and um, and I mean, I just never liked those. It's disturbing to me. I mean, there's a difference in a scary movie and a disturbing movie. And when, when my wife and I go to the theater on a Friday night to watch a comedy, a romantic comedy, <laughs> a chick flick is what I'm saying. I'm doing my, my duty as a loyal and obedient husband. And I got to watch six minutes of trailers of some beautiful little girl who's possessed by Satan and she <laughs> kills her parents and then burns the town down. I'm like, damn. I mean, I don't want to see that. I mean, if I were at the shining then feed me some of that but you know don't put my popcorn on and cover my eyes like yeah. a like a sissy boy let's go to the um let's go to the phone uh daphne and dylan you are on with dr bolt good morning good morning dr bolt uh and all you guys 
great day. Uh, Dr. Bird, I'd like for you to know that I love history. Well, thank you. And when I was in grammar school, we learned a lot about world history and American history. And all these people that call in and talk about, oh, you're just going by biblical history, they're very wrong because evidently they didn't read the same books that I read when I was in school. They don't know that uh, the land that is called Israel and Gaza used to be Canaan, and those, that land dates back 200,000 years and has been proved by archaeologists. They don't know that the Palestinians came across the desert and occupied what is now Palestine. They came from Egypt and Jordan and a lot of other Muslim countries. They don't know that Iran once was a thriving country and that they even gave women the right to vote in the 50s and they reverted back to Islam, and in the 60s, they were very rich from their oil because the British, the French, and all those contractors that were there with the oil wells had to move out. They told them to leave. Then the Ayatollah took over, and the women now are prosecuted for not wearing their headscarves correctly. They don't know that Islam was the ones that were responsible for blowing the towers down. The children, this day and time, are not learning history. Thank you. Thank you, Daphne. Appreciate that. 843 You make some excellent points, and we often forget that a generation ago, Iran was sort of the, the bougie, the most one of the more progressive areas in the Middle East, and the, the Ayatollahs came into power and certainly have have reverted. They've tried to turn back the clock. They've been successful in turning back the clock. Instead of a any type of democracy, it is a theocracy uh, there now. And so, no, she makes some excellent. We need to know, be aware of our history. And I'm, I'm happy that she she learned it uh, and appreciates it. Yeah, well said. Let's go to the phone. Jim and Florence, you're on with Dr. Bolt. Hey, good morning, guys. So, Ken, one of the things that you like to say is that we're a, a young country. Well, we're a young country, but we in the sense of the people um, and the culture young compared to the rest of the world. But our government is what I think somewhere along the lines of one of the top five oldest governments currently in the world. And why is that? It was because of our electoral college. Why is it when our side speaks to the electoral college, we don't vehemently defend it. We treat it like it's some necessary evil or it's the lesser of two evils. The Electoral College is the most perfect way man on the face of this earth has ever figured out how to choose um, the executive of any country. Not only should we defend it, we should celebrate it. Um, anytime that we've enacted more and more democracy in this country, we have made this country worse. And I, you know, the 14th Amendment has been uh, has destroyed this country through cases like Reynolds v. Sims, the whole one man, one vote, we will net rural America will never come back because of democracy. Democracy um, is awful. We should steer away from it. And all it is is trying to 
parade around like Republicanism, but it's just a uh, wolf in sheep's clothing. So we need to celebrate the Electoral College. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. Well, I mean, in all honesty, Dr. Bolt, the 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 battle. I mean, America is a is a quasi democracy, but it's officially a republic. A republic. I mean, sure, it, it right. is a you know, and then Franklin famously said. What you have is a republic if you're fortunate enough to keep it. to hold on to it. Right. Yeah. In, in a pure democracy, right? Everybody has a voice or a say. It's just a, a recipe for for gridlock and anarchy, if you will. So right, we surrender some of our sovereignty to our elected officials and to, to the caller's point, where right, the electoral college keeps rural America, small states, relevant. Again, if you didn't have the electoral college, who cares about North Dakota, South Dakota? And, and the Democrats have kind of found a way to kind of game plan. They're able to get to 270 without having to really worry about rural America. Uh, again, they don't need their votes. They don't court them. None of their policies are designed to assist them. Uh, they, they, they need to reevaluate that. They, they shouldn't sort of forget these individuals. In a close election, if you can pick off one of those states, uh, it would certainly make your your, can, your campaign a little bit easier. But no, I, 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 I agree that we need to maintain the Electoral College. But maybe just thinking outside of the box and having some sort of a proportional system uh, is might be at least worth a discussion. Well, and, and and I'll say this. I mean, you know, talk radio is not where you change the Electoral College. It's where you debate <laughs> right. the Electoral College. Well, it's where you, can, you have you these stimulating. Yes. Sure. I mean, you have these stimulating conversations and someone's allowed to call in and say, hey, you know, let's do this. And someone calls back in. I mean, that that's to me. I mean, if there's any beauty in talk radio, that's it. That the allowance, we don't profess to be able to fix everything under the sun, but we allow a debate about sure. everything and under it, the sun. Yeah. And that makes all of us better. The men and women in Columbia are listening, and hey, maybe they they want to think about this as well, right? You kick, kick the tires yeah. on this. You never know. Well said. Thank you for joining us. Have a good week. Tennessee SA this weekend? Connecticut. So nice, easy win. Okay. Should be an good easy deal. win. Good deal. The Gamecocks don't have things. Such as easy wins. <laughs> Sorry, man. We fight and scrub. We don't want wins, period. But we're <laughs> we, we we think we've got a little opportunity here this coming Saturday. Dr. Wilbold, history chair, Francis Marion University. We'll take a break. Back at a few. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Our number got some callers. Hang on, we'll get to you in just a couple of seconds. Let's put Eben Brown at front of the line. Fox News Radio's Eben Brown is with us from Miami. Good morning, sir. How are you? Good morning. So I have watched several committee hearings, and having been in politics, I understand that there's some, uh, there's some politics in some of these committee meetings. But something I paid close attention to, Eben, was Senator um, Kennedy from Louisiana asking certain people within our government, did they have any idea how many illegals had made their way across our southern border? And people who were paid a lot of money to know a lot of things had no clue. Is there yeah. any data out there that suggests a number uh, that has made its way and been released into the U.S.? Yes, uh, these are these are the numbers from Customs and Border Protection uh, for uh, fiscal year 2023. Now, this is only Customs and Border Protection. It does not include figures from ICE and does not include the untallyable number of gotaways, the people who are not interdicted and not released with a notice to appear in an immigration court years off. But this number is 908,669 for fiscal year 2023. Do we know where they're coming from, Eben? As as we gather data, I mean, obviously they're, I mean, seeking political asylum. Uh, you know, coming in to cause harm. What, what, as as we crunch that data, do we have any understanding at all why these people are in America? 
Well, there's, they're, they're coming from all over. They're coming for a number of reasons. Uh, some are, in fact, trying to get out of really, really bad places and are under the impression that they will be welcomed in the United States in this uh, land flowing of milk and honey, so to speak. And there are others that are just trying to enter the nation uh, nefariously uh, to be able to uh, perhaps maybe do something bad. We know we have already interdicted people on the terror watch list. The question is how many people on the terror watch list have slipped by? And there's there's no answer to that. And that's, I think, the thing that is perhaps most scary, uh, especially with regard to what is happening now in the Middle East. Uh, If there are people whose allegiances are to uh, jihadist terror syndicates or the Iranian government, one way or the you know, which are kind of, you know, sort of one one and the same. uh, Do do we know if they're capable of carrying out some sort of operation against us domestically? That's the scary part here. Very scary. Thank you, Evan. Appreciate your time. You got it. Do we have a call? We do. Okay. Let's go to the phone. Nick in Lexington. Hi, Nick. Ken, you proved you can't have such a broad brush. Okay. What are your thoughts about the Shawshank Redemption? Hmm. I like Shawshank Redemption. Yeah, I I like. You're right. And that's unfair to Stephen King. But, But you would agree he's known for movies. That, oh, yeah. that that instill fear and, you know, disturb me. I mean, obviously, the okay. Shawshank Redemption is a masterpiece. There's no doubt about that. It is, a, it is an absolute masterpiece. I, I wish he would stay in that lane <laughs> instead of some of the other well, lanes he's gotten into. I think that was the best movie about male friendship. And about hope, Nick, if you really yep. think about it. I mean, that guy, I mean, he knew he was innocent, and he never lost yep. hope. I mean, that, that's kind of, and, and that's, there's a reason right. at the end of the movie, he says, I hope the ocean is as blue as it was in my dreams, I hope. And I've always said right. that the eternal power of hope. Right. And the green mind. Supposedly a parable. He wrote that. That's the parable of Jesus Christ. Yeah, you're right. You're right. I apologize for painting with such a broad brush. <laughs> I owe Peter King. No, not Peter King. I owe Stephen King an apology. <laughs> Well, that's all right. You know, there's some Clemson fans. Apology too, too. Thank you, Nick. Appreciate it, my man. 843-661-0937 is our number. He's right about Stephen King. I hadn't thought of that. But there's more diversity there than I in his works than I give him um, credit for. Let's go to the phone. Jamie in Darlington. Hey, Jam. Good morning, guys. Uh, Happy Halloween. Um, I got to tell you, I just, I don't understand um the hatred um for the jewish people and what's happening on our campuses and uh i just wasn't brought up that way and um i went to a jewish friend yesterday uh and asked him to explain to me where this hatred comes from and uh we talked for about 45 minutes and there was really no you know uh deciding factor um, of what and where this hatred came from. Um, but I wasn't brought up to hate Muslims either. Um, I just was not in, in my, um, the way I was raised in that. And I just don't understand it, but I got to tell you, if I, if I had a child on one of these campuses, um, joining in on one of these, um, um, you know, um, 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 marches against the Jewish, uh, state, um, 
I, I would let my child know you either write a, an apology letter being a part of that um, that uh, march and hatred, or you just pack your bags up and come on home because I'm not going to pay for your your education um, in in being a part of that. Um, but as it um, goes with scary movies, can I like a scary movie, and The Shining is is awesome. It's one of the best movies. But uh, the movies today just don't leave anything to the imagination. So have a good day. Thank you, Jam. Appreciate it. Yes, scary turned into disturbing at some point in time is the point that I, I've tried to make. Uh, I want to go back to something Jam said because I get paid to give opinions. I get paid to speculate. That's a luxury. I mean, it really and truly is. I am somewhat informed. I have a medium, and I am not afraid to speak my piece. Um, that's kind of a dangerous combination when you really boil it down. It's been somewhat successful in the marketplace, but I, I'll give it a try. Um, Jam said he doesn't really understand where this anti-Jewish sentiment comes in uh, from America. Well, let, let's 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 speculate. Let, let's give an opinion on something that we don't know the answer to, but but we're we're qualified to give an opinion, and we have an audience, and you folks can agree or disagree. I believe that at the center of the American support of Israel is the Judeo-Christian ethic. I mean, it's obvious that there, there, there are politically strategic reasons to have a vested interest in a place in that part of the world. Historically, the world has depended on the free flow of oil. Well, I mean, if the free flow of oil is required to generate commerce and we're the largest economy in the world, we're going to have a geopolitical interest in that part of the world. Fair enough. Um, you can say it's too much, it's too pronounced, um, we've done too much for Israel. I think Josh kind of believes that. I think Josh believes the Jews play their hand. Uh, they, they kind of overplay their hand, and the American military-industrial complex has money to be made. I respect that. I think that's a legitimate debate to have. But, but I believe that the college campuses that supply the media with the majority of its you know consequential reporters and journalists and the, the same universities that supply our administrative agencies within the federal government, the majority of, of its department heads and, and supervisors, I believe that they are very secular. And they don't care much for the Judeo-Christian ethic. Um, I think, you know, Breeze calls people godless. I, I don't, you know, I don't know. Um, but I do believe that if you are a Christian— and you ascribe to the Judeo-Christian ethic, you have to look at Israel fundamentally different. Doesn't mean you have to agree with what I believe, but you have to look at it a little bit differently than you do Ukraine. I think Josh has admitted um, that he looks at Israel a little bit different than he does Ukraine, but he's not willing to be as supportive as I am. Is that is that a fair analysis? That's fair. Okay, that's fair. Um, you do consider... The, the 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 biblical worldview in relation to Israel. You don't consider that in relation to Ukraine. But but it doesn't stop you from believing that Israel's overplayed its hand. I mean they've gained our system a bit. They've got more advantages than they deserve. They they've they've um they've convinced our political and military leadership that you know the free flow of oil would cease to exist if not for us making this huge um, investment in that in that part of the world. But I don't believe, I mean, I think that's what motivates Josh. And I think Josh is very thoughtful in trying to understand where he ends up in this um, timeless saga. We're talking about thousands of years ago. 
um, and who got there first and who deserves to have province over that territory or providence over that territory. But, 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 but I, I'm talking about the, the, the media. I'm talking about academia. I believe the, the majority of these elite universities where you see these pro-Palestinian and anti-Jewish celebrations and protests, I believe are motivated not by strategic interest, not by the military industrial complex, but rather the, 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 the opposite view of the Judeo-Christian ethic. And, you know, call it godless, call it centered on something other than um, that Judeo-Christian ethic. I don't know what kids are taught at elite universities. I've never been in a classroom at an elite university. But, but I can't believe that they're being taught the biblical worldview. I mean, I, I think I'm aware enough to know that that ain't what's happening in some of these classes at some of these elite universities. So when, you know, 35-year-old media person at CNN makes their way into a, you know, a role of authority, they carry that worldview with them. And it's not based on the Judeo-Christian ethic. In fact, it finds it offensive that America would be supportive of Israel based on some fantasy called the Old Testament or a bigger fantasy called the New Testament and this long-haired guy that some ascribe as a savior named Jesus. I mean, I do believe, guys, when you really boil it down, and, and I think Josh will agree with me here because he's trying to be thoughtful about this, I mean, there's no denying this. Whether you're a Christian, a Jew, uh, you know, a heathen, a, I mean, it doesn't matter what your uh, political, excuse me, your religious inclinations are or not. And if you don't have any, the figure Jesus Christ is consequential. I mean, there's a reason Larry King said, and Larry King was an atheist. Larry King said, if given the opportunity to interview one person in the world in history, who would it be? One figure in history. He said, Jesus Christ. And the one question is, are you the son of God? Because if you are, that's the center of the universe and nothing else matters. Well, I mean, that, 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 if you really kind of peel the onion all the way back, there's this figure. That is very central. The Jews in America, excuse me, the Jews and Christians disagree on who Christ was, but they they accept his relevance. I mean, they accept him as being a prominent person in the history of the Judeo-Christian ethic, probably the most important person. And not in the Judeo ethic, but the Judeo-Christian ethic can't exist without Christ. And I think there's an anti-Christian sentiment in higher education, an elite higher Education. I don't think there's an anti-Christian sentiment at Coastal or Francis Marion or Carolina. Ah, let me take some of that back. Some of these R&D universities like Carolina and Clemson, they, they probably creep into that, you know, anti-Judeo-Christian ethic. But I've got no doubt in my mind that the majority of students leaving elite universities are told to not base your life on this Judeo-Christian ethic. I've got a friend who had a kid that went to one of these elite universities, did well in academics, and he, and he didn't want to go to Carolina Clemson, wanted to kind of see how he measured or get some of the elites in academia. And he went up to, a, uh, had a theology class in uh, uh, Yale, Harvard, one of these schools, but, um, and he was very, very well equipped. Uh, you know, he's from the South, and they probably deducted a few uh, allowance points from him for being from the South. But, um, but he gets there, and in one of the first classes, the professor said, how many of you believe in God? And a third of the class raised their hands. He thinks there were more than that that believed. They were just, they knew where they were. Uh, him being a dumb Southerner, he raises his hand. Yeah, I believe in God. My family carried me to church, but I happen to be blessed with an intellect. I mean, I'm smart, and that's why I'm here, to test myself and get the best education imaginable. 
And the professor said, for those of you who believe in God, it's my job and objective to convince you that you believe in a fairy tale. That's nonsense. And I will convince you over the next however long it takes that you're believing in a nonsensical fairy tale. Well, those kids end up running government agencies. Those kids end up, you know, um, dispersing the media. And, and, and once again, I'm not talking about some of these local universities. That's not what I'm discussing. I'm just saying that when you, when you wonder where this pro-Palestinian, anti-Jewish mindset comes from that is more pronounced than it's ever been in our media, in our, in our, in our elite universities, I, I don't think it's about oil. I don't think it's about the British mandate. I don't think it's about the Ottoman Empire. I don't think it's about King David. Eh, it probably is about King David and and the God of Abraham. I do. I believe it is a, it's a, it, it's a, it's a, it's a confrontation that these people have with the Judeo Christian ethic and and worldview. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Let's take a call and then we'll take a break. David in the PD. Hello, David. Hey, Ken, I, I kind of want to go back to Halloween just for a second. Uh, you remember back in the day, there was two movies I always think about, uh, Cujo and these Freddy Krueger movies. Yeah, Cujo uh, was the dog think- that bit the door off and all that craziness. Another oh, disturbing, yeah, another I disturbing movie. I remember taking movie. these girls, I, I would go to the movie theater, and I think that, okay, I don't want to watch this movie because I haven't seen the, the dog in your backyard. And then I think about uh, Freddy Krueger. Good Lord, look at the nails that you got on you now. Uh, but uh, I said to myself, I said, look, I'm paying for this movie. I should have some say-so. Because uh, as gentlemen we are, I don't think uh, I don't think ever a girl has paid for me to go to a movie. But anyway, I feel like the taxpayer. Uh, hey, we we need paying for this thing. We need to have some say-so. And um Ken, I'm I'm looking at old Blinken today. They're going to have this hearing or whatnot. They're going to try to get the Ukraine and the Israel spending, and they're going to talk about that. So you're going to see that it doesn't matter who gets. They just want the money. The government wants the money. Ukraine, Israel, whoever. And I think you were going to talk about the electoral math. And uh, if you just take the 235-plus math and you break down all these states, and I hate to say it like this. You can break down how many Jewish voters are in these states. So you really get down into nuts and bolts of what's going on in uh, Pennsylvania and places like that. And here's, I'll leave you with this because I really wanted to go on this uh, electoral thing, but there, there are more Arab votes in Michigan than there are Jewish votes. And that's 15 electoral votes. That's one that uh, Trump won in 2016. So. Our math, our math is simple. If if the two thirty five plus math, if we can win Georgia and Pennsylvania, it's over with. But let's say you don't win Pennsylvania, you don't win Georgia. Now you go back into all kind of uh, a mix here. But uh, I, I'll leave you at this, man. Hey, I'm paying for the movie. I should have some say so. Thank you, David. Appreciate it. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Take a break. Back in just a few moments. You know, if you, if you want something to be, very often we'll take anecdotal evidence and turn it into trends. Um, I, we began the show this morning, and 75% of the 8 million Jews in America vote Democrat. I mean, I've always wondered why. I got several friends of mine, and they say, I don't know. I mean, maybe the plight of the downtrodden, you know, the Jews trying to find a place to call their own after 
the Holocaust. I mean, I, you know, he's, he's, I don't know. I mean, I don't have any idea why the majority of my people, so to speak, vote Democrat, but it's about 75, 25. I'm arguing that this may be the beginning of a changing of that. It'd be like the Southern, the Southern white Democrat turning into the Southern Republican. I mean, you could say, well, they're racist. I mean, when LBJ passed the civil rights legislation, of course they uh, turned to Republicans, you know, I mean, I, yeah, probably some degree that's, that's true, but um, more conservative in nature. And as the National Democrat Party got more liberal, you, you kind of, you know, my, I didn't leave my party. My party uh, left me. I, I, I do think, I mean, it, to me, this is not anecdotal. Uh, there, there's an organization called MAGA-AM, M-A-G-E-N space A-M. Pronounce it however you choose. It is a, it is a Jewish gun training class. And they had 950 calls in about 32 months. They've had 638 in the last five days. Let me say that again. A Jewish gun training class had 950 calls in over three years. They've had 638 in the last five days. That's interesting to me. Maybe anecdotal, maybe the beginning of a trend. Let's go to the phone. Bob in Florence. Morning, Bob. Hey, good morning, guys. Um, uh, great uh, conversation this morning and brings back a whole lot of memories, specifically from my formative years. You know, I lived through the 60s, and uh, I experienced, at least from a distance, um, the long, hot summers, the, the racial riots that occurred. And I lived near a major pol- uh, met- metropolitan area and was able to see the smoke rise from uh, from my back steps. But one of the things that was brought up and in all the analytical stuff that people did when it was all over was there appeared to be some kind of um, tension between the, um, uh, the inner city blacks and Jewish entrepreneurs that the inner city blacks felt were exploiting them. And I'm not here to, to, to uh, pass judgment on whether that was uh, true or not. But, you know, like your friend that you talked to, Ken, I'm really perplexed of, you know, why all this sudden uh, anti-Semitism is, um, is, has come to light. Um, this little element of from back in the 60s really hasn't been, been mentioned at all in all the in-depth conversations that all these smart people on the TV are, are, are doing. But, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just as uh, uh, surprised at, at all this that's happening. And, um, you know, I wasn't, um, I wasn't immune from, uh, uh, from being in contact with Jewish people. I went to a university where a lot of Jewish uh, folks there had Jewish friends, and we talked a lot about our differences and things, but there was never any of this real, uh, uh, real anti Semitism that seems to be portraying now. Maybe I was a bit sheltered, um, but I don't know. Uh, I'm I'm just as surprised as you are at it, and I'm just wondering if what that last caller said about um, 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 Muslim Arab um, immigration into this country might have something to do do with it. I don't know. I'm just uh, giving you out giving you that just as uh, 
a little bit of information to, to put into the whole collection of things. Thank you. Appreciate that. That's a very interesting nugget of information to put in the, um, I don't the basket of these dis- debates and discussions we have. I mean, I've got a theory. You ready? I mean, I wrote it down this morning. Um, who is the most prominent Western intellectual in American politics today? Would it be Barack Obama? I mean, nobody accuses Joe Biden of being a Western intellect. <laughs> I mean, th- there's no doubt about yeah. it. Barack okay. Obama is an intellectual. I mean, th- there's no, I mean, there, there's no doubt about as much as I try to argue J.D. Vance could be a conservative intellect. I mean, Vance is highly educated, very astute, very knowledgeable about the world around him. Now, some would say he's, you know, he's a politician playing a game. Well, I mean, once you become a politician, you play the game. Obama ran as a centrist Democrat. I've never believed that. I think Obama is a radical liberal, and he's a Western intellect. I mean, he is probably the most prominent Western intellectual that, that is involved in the big discussion in America today. And I believe that Obama's anti-Semitic. I mean, I've read some of the postmortems. I've read some of the things that we didn't know much about the guy when we elected him. But, but America felt like it owed African-Americans, you know, an opportunity to be in charge of a nation. Um, it's hard to argue the nation is at its core racist when Barack Obama wins Iowa. You know, I mean, that, that's just, wow, okay, we're a racist nation, but Obama wins Iowa. But I think Barack Obama at his core is anti-Semitic. It may come from what our caller just talked about. I don't have any guy. I'm not Jewish. I'm not black. So I'm not going to try and break down and psychoanalyze, you know, why, why blacks and Jews have this friction. But it's there. I mean, it, it, there, there's no question it's there. But I believe that, that Obama has had enormous influence on the media and enormous influence on academia because he is a revered Western intellect. Whether you agree or disagree with things that come out of his mouth, you can't dispute his transformative personality and the amount of influence he has on on the Democrat Party and body politic. So when the New York Times decide to not say terrorism, but rather anti-colonial defiance, I mean, you want to start going, okay, where did that come from? That may end up at the doorsteps of uh, Barack Obama. Let's go to the phone. Just a theory. Once again, I don't know that I'm right about that. That's a speculative um, kind of notion that I have. Let's go to the phone. Jeff in Florence. Hi, Jeff. Hey, good morning. Um, Ken, uh, if you had a mission statement for your show, I think you would, you, would, you would say it would be, my job is to talk to you and make you uh, not believe your government, to not trust your government. Would you agree with that? No, my, my mission statement would okay. be to inspire you to think a little on your own to the point of calling in and expressing your opinion or belief on whatever said subject we're talking about. My, my core, my, my fundamental self-person philosophy is distrust of government, but, but I don't consider that to be the most important thing we do on the air. The most important thing I try to do is inspire well, and said- create a conversation and allow people to say their two cents worth. Yeah, you, you have said your job is to make you suspicious of government. Yeah, yeah, that's part of yeah, but that that would clearly, but you but, said it. You know, it, I know what I said, Jim. That professor, I know, but I, how is that any? Well, what what I'd like professor? to know once in once in a while, I'd like to know what Jeff thinks. Because so Jeff, Jeff is real good. You're you're the typical liberal. You're real yeah, good okay. at psychoanalyzing what everybody else says. 
but you're not real good at telling us what you believe, and I'm yet to know what you believe because you're so busy psychoanalyzing what everybody else believes. I'm just pointing out a little bit of hypocrisy there. Well, I mean, I don't think it's an hypocrisy at all. Okay, so the professor saying that he's going to make somebody suspicious or um, raise their awareness that God might not exist is really different than you saying. He's a college professor. I'm a damn radio show host. Hell yeah, there's a difference. Give give yourself some credit. Holy, I mean, I'm a radio show host. (laughs) He is a highly educated college professor at one of the leading universities in America, and you're telling me our responsibilities are equal one to another? You have a microphone. You have a big platform. Well, I mean, I, I'm, I, we're, we're the 185th biggest radio market in America. He's at one of the 10 most elite universities the world knows. Yeah, with a little classroom. But that's not why I called. I just I found it funny. Why I called, another thing, um, when you wonder why Jews um, might not embrace MAGA or the Republican Party, don't forget about the America First movement in the 1940s. Don't forget that they embraced Nazism a little bit. Don't forget that. And when you have Donald Trump having Nick Fuentes to dinner at Malargo, and you have Marjorie Taylor Greene speaking at white supremacist rallies and anti-Semitic conferences, that does come home to roost. You know, you, you, you can't dismiss that Jews see that and go, these guys are hanging out with people who don't want us to exist. So there is that. But I did want to point out, I wanted to ask you, did you see Trump's comments about NATO and what he told the NATO leaders? I have not. When he was president. In his speech the other day, I forget which city, but so does he, uh, that he was in. Well, I know he's always uh, threatening to withdraw from NATO, which is probably no, something no, no. I, I kind of sort of agree with. When he was president, he he said at his latest rally in, in Iowa, I think it was, uh, this past weekend, he said, I sat down with the NATO leaders, and I told them, if Russia invades you, I'm not going to stop it. We're not going to protect you. Now, that's out of his mouth. And that's kind of a reflection of his voting base. I mean, that's where the Republican voter is today. Today, but this was four years ago. This was six years ago. That's kind of where the Republican base was four years ago or six years. There's a reason Trump got elected. You you believe that the the uh you, you you've said that when did America first become born? I mean I think it was validated in sixteen when Trump elected, but but it was it was in the works when I ran for office in twenty ten. I mean, I sensed yeah, I mean, a lot of America first populism out there when I ran for office in probably before 2010. But but I just remember consultants telling me to say X, and I'd leave going, I don't know, man. I mean, these people have something else on their minds. But but I think it was validated in 16 when Trump won the White House. So, but as far as you have no issues with him telling NATO that the Russia can have Europe, I, I can't I can't have a problem with that, and then say. I don't want any American child to ever die in Poland. I mean, to me, I'm being, you, you accuse me of being hypocritical. Foreign I'm very nation. hypocritical if I say that, that we should defend all, all NATO nations and abide by the agreements we've made. 
and, and then in the next breath say, but I don't want any American kid to ever die in Warsaw, Poland. I, I can't so, have so it both ways. Have, you can't. And, and if you have America first in mind, where would you shed blood? Would you shed blood with Israel or would you shed blood with Europe? Which one's better for the United States? That's interesting, Jeff. We've got to take a break, but I, I'll consider that and try to answer it to the best of my ability after we pay some bills. Back in a few. Okay, let's forget the, the ideological, philosophical debate we have a lot on this show. Let's forget that for two seconds because, uh, I mean, I'm getting text here about, you know, Trump said what he said because NATO members were not paying their fair share. I mean, that's politics. And that's, let, let's ask a simple question. And it, it's, it's not a simple answer. I mean, it's a very simple question, but, but I got to believe the answer is going to be extremely complicated. Where today are we, the Americans, willing to spill American blood? I mean, obviously, in our homeland. I mean, no doubt about I, it. I, I mean, the first thing that came to my mind is along our okay. borders. Oh, the Texas border. I mean, that's the first place I went. Um, I mean, you know, it would, it would upset me. It would break my heart. But, but I do believe that, that our men and women of the armed services trying to secure the border and being killed is the most honorable way imaginable because that has a direct influence on our safety and security. Jeff asked an interesting question. Where else in the world are we non-interventionist America firsters willing to spill American blood or have American blood spilled? That's a complicated answer. I mean, the, the answer to me, I mean, I know what Josh is about to say, nowhere. Am I right, Josh? I mean, is that, I mean, your look on, the look on your face was, okay, I'm with you on the border, but, but I'm not sure it's that complicated for me. I don't want American blood spilled in Israel. I don't want American blood spilled in Ukraine. I don't want American blood spilled in Poland. I mean, I understand the UN treaty. I understand the obligation that we signed up for. Now, now Trump would argue, yeah, but they kind of breached the contract. You know, the contract's null and void now because they didn't spend a percentage of their GDP on their defense to fund NATO. Therefore, if we don't do what we said we're going to do, you know, they didn't do what they said uh, they were going to do. It's a little bit like the schoolyard, your mama, you know, your mama first. Well, I mean, bad man passed first lick. It's like, anyway, uh, it, it's more, I mean, it's, it's far more important than that, but it would be the same mindset. They didn't do what they said they were going to do, so we're not going to do what we said we're going to do, but that's something a lot of us need to consider as we, as we, you know, evolve into this, uh, we're not pacifist. I mean, I think we understand that at times war is necessary. I mean, if I were a pacifist, I wouldn't be in support of Israel doing whatever they need to do in Gaza. I mean, if, if you know, and, and I, you, a lot of the neocons will call us the pacifist wing of the Republican party i refer to myself as a a non-interventionist and when someone says why i'd say really why i mean how have the interventions worked out for us since vietnam you know i mean in all honesty i was thinking about this the two biggest underachievers in all the college football may have played saturday with the the gamecocks and aggies now, now the the aggies are underachieving at a higher level but they're both extremely well-funded programs they're both prominent members of college football uh they're 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 you know they're members of the sec i mean that gives you that kind of validates your legitimacy just being a member of the southeastern conference i mean obviously a&m is a bigger brand and should you know their ceiling should be higher than south carolina's but but who's the biggest underachiever in military endeavors in the past 40 years america 
I mean, look at the amount of money we spend to equip our military uh, and look at the results we've gotten since Vietnam. But, but where? Go back to the question Jeff posed. Where are we willing to spill American blood? Are you willing to have American soldiers? I mean, I'm convinced they're there now. I, I, I'm not some insider. I certainly don't have a source at the Pentagon, but I've read in multiple places that I perceive to be trustworthy that there are about 6,000 special forces that aren't where they normally are. Now, now uh, I didn't see them at the ball game Saturday, so, so where are they? You know, I, I don't have any idea. Are they on the border of Poland? Don't know. Are they on the? Um, are they in Israel on the Gaza border? I don't know. Don't have any idea where they are, but they're not where they've historically uh, been. Where are you willing to spend American blood if you're one of these um, new era non-interventionist America First Republicans? Let's go to the phones. Jim in Chesterfield. Hello, Jim. You're on the air. Yes. Um, why don't you look at? Uh... Matthew, the 21st chapter, at uh, what Christ uh, said he was going to do to those Jews that uh, was going to murder him when he had come back uh, from the dead. And uh, St. Mark uh, recorded the same thing in the 12th chapter. And St. Luke uh, recorded uh, that he said the same thing in the 20th chapter of uh, St. Luke's gospel. Uh, and then you look at the uh, Simon Barcoba revolt of uh, uh, 131 A.D. and uh, how that the Jews went to <clears throat> went to murder in the uh, Christians, and uh, Christ uh, brought the Emperor Hadrian into it and uh, slaughtered a million and a half of them, and uh, rescued the uh, the Christians again for the third and fourth generation so that the uh, second commandment, uh, which is uh, says that I will uh, visit the sins of the fathers down upon even under the third and fourth generation, was fulfilled with Emperor Hadrian slaughtering them again uh, for trying to murder the Christians. And, of course, uh, St. Stephen was uh, murdered, uh, and that's recorded in the uh, eighth and ninth chapters of uh, the book of the Acts of the Apostles by St. Luke. So uh, you better be uh, checking the, that all out because uh, I'll tell you right now, you're not going to get me to fight for uh, or to contribute for your damn Jews or your uh, Mohammedan devils either. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. 843-661-0937. Josh, you have an answer. Uh, <laughs> is there is there any place in the world right now? And sure. Of course, it changes based on what's going on geopolitically in the world. But right now, no, we've we've withdrawn <laughs> from that's, Afghanistan. That's what I was going to say, because, Jeff, you know, he calls in and he brings up, well, what would America first have done during World War Two? And I, you know, I think it is circumstantial, but ba based on the circumstances of the world right now, nowhere. I mean, I tend to agree with you. Yeah. And, and, I, and I'm, I'm trying to freak myself out for believing that. But, but you did not spend a lot of your young adult life as a neocon. That's true. I mean, you didn't, you, you weren't, you weren't uh, repetitively brainwashed into believing that, you know, this is not about the military industrial complex. 
This is not about military funding. This is not about Raytheon. This is about safety and security of the American people. And I've just, I, I just, I don't buy that anymore. I'm sorry. I just don't enjoy your day. We'll talk tomorrow.